I have such a fast temper, and I, I mentioned the show, I have a real smart mouth, and it got me in so much trouble. But I, in jail, I discovered I need to be very careful about making smart-ass comments because everything reverberates. Mistakes in prison are magnified. You know, you can, you can meditate and do all this kind of stuff, but you have to deal with here and now because prison pretty much puts you in the here and now in a way that you don't really meet on the outside so much. It's like, you have to deal with this now. Popeye was eating his, his beans one day and this guy came into the cell block and shipped him about three times in the back, caught him one in the neck that should have not gone. Luckily, it just caught the edge. A lot of blood, but not any of the bad stuff. But he had three holes in the back <clears throat> and he was bleeding and people are screaming and the guards are dragging him out. And, and I'm realizing somewhere in the next 24 hours, this guy is going to explode. And those people I kind of keep an extra eye on and you stay away from them because they're going to cause a lot of trouble. The weak people, you know, if you're weak, you pray, P-R-E-Y in jail. And the weakest guys in jail would have to hook up with somebody to protect them. And what it costs them to hook up all depends on what they want to give and what people want to take. It isn't set. And the different people who are trying to, to control things and so on, they might send somebody out and maybe try and get them to teach, pass a lesson around. You just have to be awake and aware all the time. You, if you if you relax too much in jail, you end up regretting it because while you relax, something bad happens. So many people have asked us to get Billy Hayes back on for a full interview. We had a section with him two years ago, and you saw what a great guy he is. He does yoga, namaste, meditation, namaste, so peaceful, yeah. just absolutely glowing with positive energy and love after going through the darkness of the Midnight Express, the Turkish prison experience. So his official introduction is Billy is an American writer, actor, and film director, best known for his autobiographical book, Midnight Express, about his experiences in an escape from Turkish prison after getting convicted of smuggling hashish. He was one of hundreds of US citizens in foreign jails serving drug charge sentences following a drug smuggling crackdown by foreign governments. And the book that saved his sanity during lockdown is Midnight Express Epilogue, Train Keeps Rolling. That's available worldwide on Amazon now. And all of Billy's links will be in the description box below this video. Before we get to the in-depth exploration of what led to this banged up abroad experience, I'm going to just give Billy a huge thank you first for coming on. And then and, and then we like to start out with a bit of a, a story in the middle of the action, uh, Billy. And I know you've got a great one about this fight you had with Weasel Face. Ah. What, well, who, 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 who was Weasel Face and what day of your incarceration did this happen? This was my literally my first night locked up in the uh, the big prison. When I was arrested at the airport, they brought me in and did some searching and hours and hours of different cops coming in and stripping me down and searching me. Then they took me to a little lockup. And as you know, 
the intermediary lockups are way worse than the prisons for the most part because, oh, it's terrible. So they threw me in the lockup and I spent one night there thinking I'm going to get out some way. I'm going to get away from all this. Nobody's going to know. My parents are not going to know, which was the thing that was looming in the background of my mind because I was I was so young and so foolish and so selfish. And, uh, you know, I, I made three successful hash smuggling trips. We can get to that, which I'm only known for the fourth trip where I got busted. How about my three successful trips? When I got busted, they put me in the lockup. And the next morning, the uh, a guy came out from the American Council, the Turkish gentleman who spoke terrific English. And he started talking to me about what was going on and showed me a list of potential lawyers I could talk to. You know, these names, Turkish, I can't even read the names, much as the side. And then he left me alone in this little locked room with a pencil and a piece of paper to uh, to write a letter home to my folks. And that's when the reality, I couldn't hide from it anymore. The reality of what I've just done, not only have I fucked up my own life and put myself in prison, but all the people who love me, I'm sure you can relate. Your family is going to suffer for the things you did or things I did. And that was so hard. That's when, that's when my life started to change. That's when I realized that there were consequences to your actions, none of which I thought about. I was footloose, fancy free, 21, 22, 23, smuggling. I got hash in one pocket, cash in the other. You know that feeling. And I was on top of the world. And then they busted me down. And the first day they brought me to the uh, Istanbul prison, the big lockup prison, uh, they they threw me in this little cell and it was it was cold and I, I didn't have a blanket. This guy locked me in. But the, the head guy who was sort of a, he was a prisoner, but a trustee who ran things and, you know, worked with the guards and he locked me in. And I, I watched him with this big key. This is 1970. Don't forget. There's nothing electronic. Nobody's hitting a buzzer and the doors open. He's got this big old ring key ring with a bunch of keys. And he's trying to find the right one to lock my door. And I keep watching. And I realize he just gave up like, he didn't really lock my cell door and I hear him jangling off. And from the next cell, I hear, Psst, and I open my door and this big German guy next door to me, he gives me a stick with a nail in the end of it. And he tells me about blankets, last cell. <laughs> so I go down to the last cell and I stick the, the stick in with the nail at the end. I hook a blanket and then I hook another blanket and I come back. I give him a blanket, give him back his stick, <laughs> close my door. And I curl up on this skimpy little mattress and collapse into sleep because I've been, you know, awake for like almost two days now. And then the door slams open and this guy, Amin, comes charging into the cell and he's screaming and yelling. He's yanking my blanket away. I'm not real big, but I used to be very fast and nasty. And I used to do martial arts and shit. You know, if you, if you want to be a badass, turn around. There's always somebody there who can kick your ass. But I was just, I was scared to death. And he grabbed the blanket. Next thing I got a wham. And I hit this guy reflex nailed him right in the face and boom he goes down and his nose spurts and he's bleeding and he's screaming for the guards and they're dragging me out i'm trying to explain i don't speak turkish yet they don't speak English. he woke me up he hit me first all they know is new guy first night in a fight lesson needs to be taught and in turkey like most of the middle east they have a punishment called falaka where they they beat your feet with a stick so these guards dragged me downstairs and throw me on the floor and ripped off my sneakers and wrapped this rope around my ankle and hauled me up in the air. So my feet were up and this big burly bear of a guard started beating my feet with the stick. And I'm screaming and yelling there to hit my hands. 
all these people say, oh yeah, you know, when you get beaten and stuff, you, you don't make any noise, you tough it out. Poor shit. That's somebody who's never been beaten before. I'm screaming at these motherfuckers. They hit my hand and the stick. I really thought they were killing me. Turns out it's not even a bad beating. I discovered later a bad beating. I didn't have any broken bones. Broken bones, that's not a bad beating. It's like, whoa. If they break your bones and keep you there and beat you the next day again, that's a real bad beating. So what I discovered quickly is in jail, if you get in a fight, if you and I are in a fight in jail, then the guards come in and I'm all bloody, they beat you equally bloody. If if you're bloody, they beat me equally bloody. So you can't win. You got to get in, get out, and get away from it. And it, it held me in good stead because they dragged me to the cellar and they beat my feet, they beat my hands and stuff. But again, it, it wasn't that bad. One of the good things about being a foreigner in Turkey, the Turks all knew that there's an American council or a German council, somebody out there that if you really fuck up a prisoner, you're going to have to answer to the council. So I think that gave us a little bit of leeway where they beat you, but not real bad stuff. Some of the Turks, guys who were like student activists and, you know, these, uh, they had a lot of political stuff going on back then. Those people got beaten because they had knowledge or they had something that they wanted to get from them, or they just knew this guy has been a thorn in their side and they're going to teach him a real good lesson. I, again, as a foreigner, as a drug smuggler, we were on the bottom of the hierarchy. You know, on the outside world, nasty smugglers and killers and stuff are usually on the bottom of the social structure of most countries. In jail, everything turns over. The worst guys, the baddest guys, the killers are on top. And the bottom is drug smuggler. They call those yum-yums. Drug smuggler, foreign drug smugglers like myself. But uh, again, it, it held me in good stead because this guy, Ziat, he went around the prison for like the next week or two with this big bloody nose and a black eye. It really swole up a lot. I, I loved it to see it. And everybody saw him and they said, what happened to Zia? And he said, oh, the new guy, Willie, which is my name in jail. Willie beat him up. It's like, then they see Willie. It's like, I'm five foot eight and I weigh 150 pounds. But it's like, if they're looking to somebody to mess with, there's always somebody a little easier. And Ziat's black eye gave me a little bit of a reputation, which, as you know, in prison was a really good thing. Wow. And it helped me out. That is an absolutely fantastic story, Billy. Appreciate that. So let's go back then okay. to find out how the hell this happened. Where were you born and how did your parents meet? I was born in the Bronx, New York. Um, <clears throat> my parents actually grew up in the same house I was born in. They were childhood sweethearts. They went to school together. And then they were married happily for the next 60 years or more. I was really lucky. I didn't even know until kind of like getting into my early teen years how lucky I was. I had such good parents, which I kind of like just took for granted until I saw other people and other friends who who didn't have that. My folks were my dad was very, uh, very smart. He was so logical. He was an athlete and he. He constantly taught me little things. I didn't even realize what it was. I could read. I can't remember a time in my life when I couldn't read. I knew from the earliest days, these letters sound like boo, B, O, O, boo. I, I figured he taught me that. And I started to read when I was this big. And every day, my dad would come home from work. He worked at Metropolitan Life Insurance Company, um, started working there when he was 17. 
getting out of high school, had to support his family, his, his mom. And uh, he stayed there for 40 years. Talk about steady and solid. And he just moved up the ranks and did very good. And, you know, he sent all three of his kids to college, etc. cetera. But um, I forget there was a point of all of this. I get lost when I'm talking about So many parallels with us, Billy, because my dad was a life insurance salesman as well for decades. There you go. As well as, you know, being blessed to have such good parents. So, yeah, wow. What they did for me, and I have a feeling they did for you, is um, he, he taught me to believe in myself. He pressed me. He always pushed me to, uh, you know, as an athlete, he was always pushing me to do more. And, and you know, every day I'd have to, when he'd come home, I'd have to learn, you know, I need five new words, use them in a sentence. Uh, he wanted to know the capitals of these rivers or the countries and the names of the rivers. I knew all that stuff. When I went to school, it, they moved me from second to third grade. They skipped me a grade because I, I knew everything. I went to a Catholic school in the Bronx when the nuns, I can still, as I say the word, I can feel these rulers hitting, hitting my hands because I was just such a smart ass. I, I couldn't, <clears throat> things would come out of my mouth. It's like, oh, suddenly, because I was, a, I was always the class clown, which was funny. And I loved it. And I'd, there'd be stuff happening. And suddenly I'd make a comment and, oh, everybody would laugh, which I, you know, I'm an actor now. I guess I really, early on, I wanted all of that applause and stuff. Everybody except the one guy who I've just made fun of, who looks at me like, mm, I'm going to crush your curly little fucking head as soon as we get out of this room. So I had to back up my, my fast mouth with either fast hands or more mouth and make him realize, <clears throat> excuse me, that, you know, I didn't really mean that. It just came out of my mouth. It's kind of what, as I got into jail, what I've discovered was make friends with the baddest guy in the room. And then you don't have to worry about the other guys because they're not going to mess with you if you're the baddest guy's friend. And that kind of got me through a lot of jail in a lot of ways. Did the nuns break you in then for these corporal punishments later on in the Turkish oh, prison? Oh, listen, uh, Turkish prison guards have nothing to do. They, I think I think the nuns kind of uh, set me up for the Turkish prison guards because after nuns, guards are pretty easy. <laughs> nuns, they early on kind of discovered that I was a wise guy. So I couldn't fool them anymore. And they were constantly on me. My dad would get these phone calls, you know, Billy did this and he didn't wear the school uniform and blah, blah, blah. And he'd say, I hear him on the phone. He'd say, uh, yes, sister. Well, how are his grades? Oh, oh, all A's. Okay. Well, listen, I'll talk to him. He'd hang up the phone. He'd say, would you, what are you doing? Would you just leave these goddamn nuns alone? I said, well, they're always picking on me. I don't have the tie on. He said, no, they're not picking on you. You're causing it. You stop it. It's like, uh, okay. But he gave me a sense of I can I can handle whatever comes my way. And if I can't, I have to learn how to. And I think by the time I really needed to deal with what's going on, when life became very difficult, life was so easy for me. Growing up in America, white, middle class, privileged, although I didn't even know what privilege was until I lost it. I think you can relate to that. You know, you talked about similarities. It's funny because, you know, I read your book, I read Hard Times and I hear your stuff and I heard you do an interview with, uh, I couldn't see him, but he sounded to me like some ganja rapper guy <laughs> the other day. And he talked about your life and you were telling them all about your history and like so many parallels down to, you know, I've written one, two, three, four books about Midnight Express. They've gone endless amount of TV shows. There was actually, there was a Midnight Express ballet. I mean, that's, that's just too bizarre to even think about. 
They did a ballet. All my New York friends were like, did they make you wear a fucking tutu? What you doing? <laughs> but the story became <laughs> immense. And I, I kind of, it became part of my life. And I, I had to deal with it. When I got out of jail, I wanted to forget prison. I got home on a Friday. By Monday, I was writing this book. I'd still be procrastinating. No, no, no. I, I don't. I wanted to forget jail, not write it. But I owed everybody in the world. And as I started to write the book, if, well, the emotions were just too much. But I realized as the words stuck to the page, they kind of came out of me. Everyone I came home said, you know, you should consider therapy. I said, no, no, I don't need therapy. I'm fine. I so desperately needed therapy. And writing the book was the beginning of my therapy. And then I ended up over the years writing three more books about the subject, directing a whole bunch of theater pieces, directing and acting in a bunch of theater pieces, prison connected, all prison connected. And as Wendy, my wife is a therapist too, she said, it's called repetition compulsion, where you're compelled to repeat your traumatic experiences and the unconscious hope of mastering them. That sounds about right. And I've been doing it ever since. And I see you have been doing that. Most guys getting out of jail like us don't talk about it. Don't bring it up. First off, you know, you get out of prison, you're trying to look for work. What's previous employment the last five years? Convict. That doesn't get you a lot of work. But both of us found to get through our experience, we needed to keep talking about it. And obviously, you are talking about it more than anybody. Again, you're the hardest working man. In the I don't know oh, thank how. You. You do all of the interviews you do. And, you know, I watch your stuff, but emotionally, there's a couple of guys you've had on who I, I can watch a little while, but I, I realize I I don't want to watch further. Um, no offense to any of them, but they're not the kind of guys that I really need to be around. And they so remind me of the bad parts of jail. You kind of bring the good parts to me, which is afterwards you can lose it. <laughs> And it supports you. And truly, after prison, everything else is kind of gravy. You know, I always say jokingly, but I mean it. I'm healthy. I'm free. Nobody's beaten my feet. My wife still loves me. That's, <laughs> that's all gravy. Hot gravy sometimes, cold gravy, but it's gravy. I'm out and I'm free. And after prison, you get an appreciation for the small things, the little things in life that, boy, once you lose them, again, being an American, life was easy. Life was so easy for me. And then it wasn't. Definitely. And, yeah. We're, yeah. And I had to learn a lot. I, I know from reading your stuff too, you went through some changes. You had to learn a lot of stuff, but Hey, here we are. We're both still healthy. <laughs> we're still talking about prison, which is so bizarre for me. We've transformed the darkness into light. That's what matters. You know, have to. Going back to your story arc then. Yeah. So in the beginning, was your mom, did she just stay home with you or did she have a career? Uh, my mom, she actually met my dad way back in near uh, 1946, I believe. Um, she was working as a secretary during the war. My dad walked in somewhere where she was and he was in his naval air, air, airman's uniform when he looked and he was a real good looking guy. And uh, mom said, you know, a bunch of the secretaries in the pool came and they were saying, did you see that good looking sailor down in the lobby? And she, she told them, no, wait, 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 he's mine. Stay away from him. <laughs> she married him. We had, there was me. And then I had a brother three years later and then a sister about seven years after that. And my mom stayed home and took care of the family. My dad worked again, same job for 40, actually 42 years. That is solid. And he was the kind of guy who, 
He was very smart, very logical. All of the extended family came to him for problems because he could always approach things logically and give good advice. And he was the kind of guy that, you know, when you needed to hear the truth, that's what he told you. I mean, I, I'm fortunate about I, my wife is kind of like that now. She mm -hmm. publishes and, and edits my books and she's brutally honest. <laughs> and that's I what you need. It, isn't it? It's so hard to yeah. find someone who really tells you the truth, especially about your writing, sensitive <laughs> things like that. And that's been good for me. And dad was like that, too. He kind of forced me to just face things and deal with them. And by the time I got arrested, I was so immature. And again, so life was so easy that suddenly it wasn't easy at all. And I had to deal with some stuff that I never thought really was going to come down my line because I was sort of past all this. I got into high school, I got into college, and now I'm looking at the hard stuff. And it, a lot of what I learned from, from dad held me in good stead when I was in jail, when I had to deal with myself, you know, but prison. Let's, let's, go, let's go back a bit again. Yeah. So are you saying that you were the oldest sibling? Yeah. And what kind, what kind of a role did that give you in the family hierarchy then? Well, it, I think it used to be where, you know, my sister was seven years younger. So she kind of looked up to me and I had stuff to offer. And my brother and I, you know, when we were young, I would always beat him up because the older brother, that's what you do until he got big enough. I really, no, 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 we won't do that anymore. But my brother was very, uh, very smart, very logical, very methodical. And when, when things went down and I had to, uh, have someone to rely on. I always knew I could always talk to him. He came to visit a few times. My dad came. My mom never came to visit. She she didn't want to uh, to see me in jail. I, and I didn't want her to see me. You know what that feels like. I don't want my, my mom to see me in, in jail. I already was putting her through so much grief. I get lost. You had a question. I sort of went off the side of it. Um, All right. So we, we were describing, you know, your role in the family growing up. What, what about at school then? Were you flourishing because you you were able to read at such a young age? Yeah. Were you ahead of your classes? School was easy. School was all. I was always so much ahead of whatever the school was because, again, I read everything on my own. By the time I came to the next grade, I basically read the syllabus of most of the books that were being done then. And so I got great grades. And I then went on and went to Marquette University, which was a good college back then. It also had a journalism school, and I wanted to be a writer, so I went into journalism. And um, I spent almost four years at Marquette, almost graduated. And a friend of mine came back from Istanbul. His dad was a wine importer, and he was traveling with his dad, and they stopped him. And he came back to Istanbul, and he had this little piece of hash, best we had ever smoked, hidden in his money belt. So we're smoking this killer hash. I mean, again, I'm jumping around, so bring me back if I'm going too far. But he, I was at Marquette. I, I got a job uh, working as a child psychiatric aide at Milwaukee County General Hospital. I met a woman. What in a year? Mall. What year? That was 19. I went to college from 64 to 68. So that was about 1966, 67, 67. So there's and been I, quite a revolution in music and culture, hasn't there? Oh, God, it was. Yeah, exactly. I hit I became a teenager in, in 1960. I was born in 1947. So I turned 13 in 1960. So all through the 60s was my teenage years. And then in 60, what, four or so, I graduated from high school and I went to college. And college was a revelation. 
I mean, I was out in the world, free, on my own. And it was the 60s. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, free love, no AIDS. I love the 60s. And then suddenly things turned around. What music? Are you a Stones guy or a Beatles? Stones. I love the Stones. I love the Beatles. I love the Stones. I love all the 60s music. I'm kind of like stuck there. You know, I probably still have a... Uh, cream, fresh cream, eight track somewhere in some car somewhere that I used to listen to. I don't listen to all that much these days. Strangely enough, I, I think a lot and I read a lot, but I'm my probably the least music guy you know. My parents went to the Isle of Wight Festival. I think Janis Joplin and. My brother was at the Isle of Wight Festival in 1960, 1970, where. He, we were in Pamplona. I had a motorcycle. We ran with the bulls. And then I gave my brother my motorcycle because I was going off for my next trip to Istanbul. And he went up to the Isle of Wight in 1970. He might have been sitting with your folks. Probably. It was so watching. big. Yeah, it was massive. It's probably the same one. Yeah, he loved it. He loved it. So this hash comes into your life? Ah, oh, yeah. Um, so... He came back with a little chunk of hash. I had just gotten a job at the County General Hospital part-time because I was still in school working with these very disturbed autistic kids. And I met this woman in a bar and she was older, maybe 30 or 35, an older woman, you know, I'm whatever, 18, 19, 20 at this point. And she, uh, one thing led to another. And then she said, you know, she worked at the hospital and for a summer job, I said, I, I need a summer job. And she said, well, this is, you know, I'm working with these autistic children in a hospital. And uh, what experience do you have? I said, well, none, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm good with kids. She said, really? Next day, I'm at the hospital. She brings me onto the locked ward. Again, the whole precursor of prison, a locked ward where they have all of these very disturbed kids and started introducing me to some of the kids. And again, I, for some reason, I connect with kids. And one particular guy he was sitting there and he wasn't speaking and he wasn't doing anything. And she brought me over and, and said, so, uh, John, this is, this is Billy and he's going to be in. And John looked up and started screaming and yelling and just freaking out, which I'm like, whoa, whoa. So she brought me back. And she said, that's very good because he doesn't respond to anybody or anything. So you have a connection with him. So I'm going to have you work with him every day. It's like, wait a second. This guy just totally freaked out. But he was one of my main guys that I would come in to work with. Unfortunately, what I discovered, I was so young, emotionally immature that I wanted to heal these guys. And like, that's not what happens. These are artistic kids. And I had no experience. I just knew I liked them. So I worked with them. But, you know, I kept thinking I want to heal them. And emotionally, it was such a draining job. I would have to take off on, on, on breaks. I would get off the locked ward and I'd walk around the hospital. And my friend had just come back from Istanbul with this little chunk of hash, which we'd been smoking. And I'd wander in the hospital and I walk past what is the, uh, the cast room. And I see a doctor dipping a roll of plaster of Paris tape into water and wrapping it around this patient's broken leg. And an idea comes to me. <laughs> Literally changes my life. So two weeks later, I'm in Istanbul, and I've got <clears throat> two kilos of hash. Slow and down. I, slow down. <laughs> I, I, I went to Istanbul, and I, I met Hold on, hold on. Why, why? What knowledge of Istanbul did you have? How did you source the knowledge first to put this plan into effect? Strangely enough, I knew Istanbul long before. Again, I'm an English and history major. I knew 
all of the iterations of Istanbul and Constantinople and Byzantium and all of the history. And I loved it. I, I felt like I knew the city before I ever went there. And when I did go there and I spent time wandering around, I realized, I don't know how or where or why, but I know this place. I've been here before. And I spent, well, the first trip, again, I, I, I met some people and I had some guys who tried to rip me off. And then one guy actually did. I had two hundred dollars worth of hash. All right, let's 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 slow all this down again. Slow yeah. this down again. <laughs> all right. So you had knowledge of Istanbul, right? And, and then you've got the method in your head, right? And the first trip out there to embark upon this activity. Then, what is your plan before you set off? I mean, have you connected with somebody out there already? Are you just going to do it spontaneously when you get out there? No, uh, my friend Bone, he he told me you, you buy it on the street. He said it's cheap. It's easy. They sell it right on the street, kind of, but enough that it's easy to score. So I knew, well, I'm smart and clever. I can pull this off. And I did. And I met some guys and they talked to me about how, something. Although, how, how did you meet these guys? I walked into the bazaar, the covered bazaar in Istanbul, and I wandered around. And there was one booth with this guy selling all these leather jackets and stuff. And there was one guy in there who was like hawking it to the people around. And I ended up talking to him a little bit. The next thing I know, he brings me out back and me and him and a couple of his buddies, we smoked this killer joint, which, you know, I told him I wanted some hash and we smoked this joint. And he tells me, okay, come back here tomorrow at noon. And I told him I wanted a kilo. And then he said, well, that's about like, you know, 150, like $150. So I said, two kilos. He said, great. Come back here tomorrow at noon and we'll sell you the kilo. So I did. I went back to my hotel. He gave me a little chunk of hash, which it was so good. I went back to my hotel. I wondered just the next day at noon, I show up and they take me out in their car. Who's well, they? Who's they? They is, they is, uh, the, the Tunjai, the guy who talks good English, and two of his buddies all hanging around, all smiling. Yeah. What do they look like? Tunjai looked like a typical uh, Turkish guy, kind of kind of big, and he had a big mustache and sort of good looking and all this head of hair and very friendly. And his English was terrific. He learned it from somebody. And he was, he was looking for idiots like me, these tourists who think they know what they're doing. So the hash they gave me to smoke. One second, one second. My, my friend is going to join us. Just to, yeah. just to recap then for the viewers watching this. So this is Bruno, who was in the jail with me. Billy here's Red Hard Time. There's a chapter about Little Italy. Bruno was an enforcer for the Italians. It's a, one of the best uh, stories in the whole book. So Bruno's going to join us now to interview Billy as a co-host and these guys sounds like you guys grew up somewhere quite close by to each other, I guess. Where's home for Bruno? Sheep Fed Bay, Brooklyn. No shit. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Great. Well, I was born in the Bronx. And then right. my dad, when I was about seven, my dad moved us out to Long Island because the city was getting to be too rough a place and he didn't want me to go bad. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> so we're at, we're at the point in the story, Bruno, where Billy's talked about his childhood. He excelled at school. It's the 60s. There's this new culture, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll, Beatles, Rolling Stones. He's, he's discovered hash. And now he's had the bright idea to fly out to Turkey. And he's on his first score. So you, you just take it from there, Billy, where we left off. All right. Well, again, seemed like a good idea at the time. Right. But uh, 
So the first first store I make, these guys bring me out and I smoke some hash and it's great. And we're supposed to come back tomorrow to the bazaar where they are. And uh, I came back and I had my money in my sock, in my boot, just in case. And uh, they rolled up another joint, which we smoked while we were driving around Istanbul. Me and this guy Tunjai, two of his buddies. And we went out and explored some of the... Istanbul is such an amazing city. I just loved it. And they took me around. Then they ended up going to some little garage somewhere. And they bring up a big pile of newspaper. And they open it up. And there's this mound, two kilos worth of hash plaques. It's like, whoa. But, you know, I'm smart. I'm, I'm a seasoned kind of smuggler here. So I, I reach way into the middle of the stack and pull it out. I say, make a joint from this one. So he says, okay. And he takes the joint, I mean, the, the plaque of hash. And he gives it to his friend who starts to roll something. And then this guy starts talking to me about New York and, you know, where did your father work? And can, can he get me a job? And we should be smuggling together on a boat. While I'm talking to him, his friend, of course, switches the plaques, rolls a really killer joint out of some really good hash. We all smoke it. It's like, this is great. And I take the money out of my sock, like I've got it hidden away. And I pay him. And then they give me the hash and put it in a big paper bag and go to a little fruit stand and buy some fruit and then pour it on top. So now I get out of the, the guy's car and I've got this big bag full of hash with grapes and fruit on the top, which felt good. And I went back to my hotel and offered some fruit to the guy at the door, like not suspicious. And I get up to my room and I'm thrilled. First time I'm here. God damn, am I cool? Look at this. I made a score. I've been here like two days. I've already scored. And then I open up the plaque and it feels a little odd it kind of crumbled a little bit and i open it up i realize it's they call it the i found out later they call it like kuna which means it's sort of like you know sheep shit and, and grass mixed together and i realized maybe it's just one plaque and i reach it it's like all of them I, I, i've been ripped off i was so pissed off and i ran back to uh to the bazaar and actually no before that i met two americans at the pudding shop which is the local hangout and one thing led to another, and I mentioned something, and they said, you know what? We met a guy in the bazaar. Did he rip you off? I said, yeah. They said he ripped me off, too. I said, I'm going back to deal with this motherfucker. They said, well, we're coming with you. So all three of us marched down into the bazaar, and when Tunjai sees us coming, him and all of his boys get in the stance. I mean, they know now. These guys will all be ready. And they're all like sort of ready for us. And I'm still going to be a badass here. And I'm going to get close enough. I can catch him in the throat, you know, a quick shot or whatever, until he opens his jacket. And there's his pistol in his belt. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> this, is, this is. So the three of us run away and we let it go. And about a week later, I got my friends from New York to wire me more money. And about a week later, I, I met a taxi cab driver who one thing led to another in Istanbul. It's, it happens quickly. And he was going to sell me some hash. He said, so uh, give me the money now and wait here. I said, no, 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 no. I, I've been through this before. So he takes me, he starts to like me, actually. We started to talk. He takes me back to his house where his brother-in-law and his wife and his small kids are there. And they sit me down and I drink tea with his wife and his young children while him and his brother-in-law, they've got this big long box and it's, they, they've got hash powder and I wanted plaques. I wanted plaques about this big because I know I'm going to tape them under my arms or around my waist and smuggle it back. So they, they're making the hash and placking it while I'm sitting with his wife and kids drinking tea. We became friends. And they, they, I got two kilos of killer hash. Actually, these guys were Kurds, which in Turkey, Kurds are like they live in the east and in the mountains. And they're all part of the Ottoman Empire. And they're Turks. But they will never admit to being Turks. They say, no, no, we're Kurds. We're not Turks. 
They are, they're Turks. But they also say that Turkish hash is shit. It's not, that's killer good. But their hash, grown in the mountains at the right levels, and these Kurdish guys took pride in saying, we have the best hash in the world. Well, I've never spoke, I tried it all, everywhere. I never smoked anything better than this hash. And I got two kilos of it. So, uh, um, as I mentioned, I earlier before this, Bruno, I was working before I went over there in the hospital and I saw a doctor dipping a roll of plaster tape into water and wrapping it around this patient's broken leg. And an idea came to me. So now I'm in Istanbul. I've got the two kilos of hash. I'm up, I strap them around my leg and I take the plaster Paris tape, put it in the water, wrapping it around. And I, it, I wrap this beautiful white cast down my leg and I spend the night smoking some hash, watching the cast dry. And next day I go out to the Istanbul airport and I go through customs and the guy looks at my passport and he asks me, how did you break your leg? I said, oh, down in Izmir, climbing on some of those beautiful ruins you have down here. And, you know, and then he asked me, where's your doctor's note? Doctor's note? Holy shit. I said, I, you know, I, I, I must have lost it down in Izmir. Do I have to go all the way back down there with this, this cast on my broken leg? And he's like, and he looks at the line. He looks at me. You know, I'm 18 looking. I look about 14. The big smile on my face. And he just says, all right, go through. And I go through the customs and I get on the plane and the stewardess on the plane reseats me so I could stretch out my injured leg, which is full of hash. And I get, I get to New York and I start walking towards the New York customs. Back in those days, now you can't because of security. Back in those days, they had like a big glass place up top where people could literally look down at customs and watch people getting up plane. And I'm clomping across the New York airport, heading towards the customs. When I realized I see all these little white flakes behind me. And I realized my cast is crumbling beneath me as I approach New York customs. And then I look up and there's my friends, the guys who have financed this trip up there screaming and yelling, yay, yay. I'm thinking, shut up, shut up. But you know, the customs guys, they look at me, they stamp my passport, they wave me through. I clomp through customs. My friends were waiting. They, they like waiting sort of at the end of the customs place. And as I approach, they turn the corner. They didn't want to be too close to me yet. <laughs> Because they know I got hash in my But I followed them out into the parking lot and into the car. And once we got in the car, we started to drive away. It's like, oh, yeah. And I, my my leg, it was so tight because of the shit that I'd wrapped around it for like 24, 48 hours now. So I break the cast and we crumple up a little chunk of this hash, which they started to smoke. And as I would just mention, this is the best hash. They were like, holy shit. How much of this have you got? I said, I got two kilos here, by the way, which... Turned out to be, I wish I had been married to my wife, who's much smarter than me in business. You know, I should have been smuggling a boatload with 20 kilos or 200 kilos. So kind of the kind of stuff that Sean did. You were so much a better businessman than me. I just took two kilos. I made about five grand profit off two kilos, which, again, I'm 21 years old, footloose, fancy free. I got no wife. I got no kids. Five grand was like, I could live on this forever. <laughs> Except six months later, the money was almost gone, and I made my second trip. Now you tell me how, when you want me to stop; otherwise, I'll just keep rolling along here. The, Bruno, the second... have you got have you got any questions for Billy so far about what he's just said? I've got I've got like fifty questions. Like <laughs> I, you know, Billy, I didn't want to. Um, 
I didn't want to burden you with all the older and all the, the same questions that all these interviewers and everybody asked you the same thing. It's cool, Bruno. I, cool. I have to know. It's, it's the 70s, New York. I mean, any corner in Queens, Brooklyn, Manhattan. Yeah. You can get anything you want. What yeah. went through your guys' head to go to Turkey? Well, that was the 70s. I was there in 1969, April of 69, October of 69, April of 70, and then unfortunately, October of 70 when I got busted. Yeah. But yeah. when I brought it back, you know, people said, well, how are you going to sell all that hash? It's like, you don't have to sell hash. I came back, the word was out. Next thing I, my, I had a nickname, I was called Crazy back then, strangely enough. And people didn't even know my real name. It's like crazy's back. So it means there's some hash back. And I was selling these little tiny, I could, I had a scale and I could cut my hash. I could take a little chunk and hold it up and think that's a, a gram and a half and put it on the scale. Perfect. And I was selling this shit. I made five grand out of it, made a lot of friends, got laid a lot. You come back with the best hash in town. You're going to do real well for yourself, especially in 1969. And it was amazing. And then I traveled the world after that i ended up being in pamplona in spain and running with the bulls in july of 69 and then in october 69 my money was running low my hash was running low and i said you know once i did it once i knew i could i could get away with this i was golden they couldn't touch me i was invincible and i went back a second time uh, only this time I flew to like London and took a train across because I wanted to get a lot of stamps in my passport. Didn't just want Istanbul, New York, Istanbul, New York. And by the time I got to Istanbul, I had a bunch of stamps across the country, rode the Orient Express across to uh, Istanbul, uh, went to the same guy, the same taxi cab driver. Where's his wife? Hello. This is his brother-in-law. Hello. Got the same amount of hash, um, taped it under my arms. And instead of getting on the plane right there, I got on the uh, Orient Express train and took that back across Europe to Amsterdam, where I then flew back to New York. Actually, I was on the train. I've got all this hash taped to my skin. I got like, my T-shirt on, my sweater on, and I'm on the train with all of these Bulgarian women and, you know, crowded third class or whatever it is. And after about an hour, I realized <laughs> my body heat this hash is starting to smell something fierce from my body heat. But luckily, I've got these four or five Bulgarian women in the car, and they're all eating big chunks of sausage. And every once in a while, one of them like lift up from this big farting, but the car stunk. That was good for me. It covered everything. I opened the window just a crack, and they looked at me like, I close it up again. They don't want that. Uh, a customs guy in Bulgaria came through, and you know, at that time, probably still, Americans were not very popular in Bulgaria. And this guy came into the car. First off, he walked in. Oh, it, it smelled bad in there. And then he started, like, taking stamping some passport. And he got my passport. And it's an American passport. And he looked in it. And he turned a page or two. And he poof, literally stamped it, poof, spit in my passport, slammed it shut, gave it to me, and then left the rest of the way. Just got out of the car. And they they were all like, ah, they were so laughing about him. But I got along great with these Bulgarian women. And I spent the rest of the trip hanging with them in that car till I got to Amsterdam, got out, took the hash off me, put it in a little bag and flew home to New York. My second trip is done. Same thing for the next six months. And the third trip, third trip, I actually uh, 
I was so confident about things that uh, I knew, again, I'm way too smart and good looking to ever get arrested. That's how stupid I was. I really believe that. <laughs> Third trip, I put the shit on my body, taped it around, put on my clothes, had my hair cut nice and short, put on this nice smile and walked straight onto the plane. Perfect. No problem. And then the next six months later, I went back to Istanbul and uh, the PLO had been just starting to hijack jets. And when I got there, the PLO had just hijacked a couple of jets and they blew them up out in the Jordanian desert, which was the start of all this airport security. Prior to that, nobody got searched getting on a plane. You could get on a plane, you know, five minutes before I left the ground with two chickens on the arm. Nobody bothered you. But I, I knew Airport security is going to be different now that they've been blowing up the planes in the desert. So the day before I'm scheduled to fly, I went out to the airport. And again, you could be those days. You could, I was up on the top deck. You could watch people going out to the plane, getting on a plane. And that was my plan. I watched, First, I watched people going through customs. Nobody got searched going through customs. I'm thinking, this is, you know, the Turks, they don't care about this shit. And instead of going up on the observation deck and watching people till they actually got on the plane, I had met uh, an English girl, <laughs> there you go, who was studying belly dancing in Istanbul. And she used to love showing me her latest moves. So instead of going up on top of the deck and watching people till they actually got on the goddamn plane, which is my plan, I said, ah, that's okay. And I went back to see her. Hope you're enjoying the podcast. There's a word from our sponsor, Rocket Money, formerly Truebill. If you're missing your credit card payments or you need to make a budget, you need our favorite financial app. Rocket Money, formerly Truebill. So why did Truebill change its name to Rocket Money? I'll tell you what I heard. Truebill, now backed by Rocket Companies, has grown from a bill management app into a full-on personal finance empowerment tool that helps over 3.4 million people with budgeting, lowering bills, cancelling subscriptions and more, saving each of their members on average $700 a year and with all that growth comes the next evolution in Truebill's story, a new name. Bottom line, rocket money is everything I've loved about Truebill, but with a fresh look and feel. Start cancelling your unused subscriptions and save money at rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. That's rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Or download the app from the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Thank you for supporting our sponsor, Rocket Money. Link will be in the description box if you're watching on YouTube. Once again, a lovely lady leading me astray. Next day, I went out to the airport. They uh, breezed through customs. You know, nobody got searched down, down there. But then they kept us in a little room downstairs for a while which is a little odd it's okay i'm through customs i'm free i'm already thinking about new york or where i'm gonna go and blah 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 and then they put us all on a couple of buses to take us out to the plane which was really strange but again i don't care and this lovely lady next to me an older woman was talking to me about her son who's here in the air force and how much she loved the turkish food and the people and i'm smiling and the bus stops and this turkish cop gets on in front looks down the aisle and says, women, stay, man, out, out. And I look out the window, and there are Turkish soldiers with rifles surrounding the goddamn plane. And a, and a red tape set up around it, yellow tape actually set up around it. And they've got a long brown table set up in front of the boarding ramp with two cops on each side, where apparently 
they're going to search people getting on the plane. And I got nowhere to go. I can't get back to the airport. I can't rip this shit off my body. All the men funneled down from these couple of buses down towards this table. The big jumble and these cops were searching people. And I realized the only thing I can do is try and bluff my way through this and bluff my way onto that plane. And I did that. I moved through the jumble of men. And then I, I kind of like circled around the first cop while he's busy with someone. And I was sidling past the second cop putting my yoga book back in my shoulder pack as if I've already been searched. And I point to him like, first guy got me. And I get one foot up in the air towards the boarding ramp when this hand grabs my shoulder, uh, my elbow. And, you know, next thing I know, this guy's pulling me aside and he tells me, put your arms up. So I put my arms up in the air and he started to search me and he hit the hard plaques under my arms and he kept going down to my waist and he hits these hard plaques taped to my stomach and he keeps going down my legs. I find myself praying, uh, you know, elapsed by a lot of years Catholic. It's like, please, Jesus, get me out of this. I will never do this shit again. And the, this, this time he comes up and he, when he hits the hard plaques under my arms, he freezes and his eyes widen and my heart stops. And I know right then it sounds so dramatic, but well, you guys both know it. There's that moment where you know your life is hanging in the balance. <laughs> Depending upon which way it goes, that's where the rest of your life. And I knew it at that moment. He freaked. He's out here looking for terrorists. In his mind, you know, he's this. I got plastic explosive under my arms. And he jumps back and pulls out his gun and starts screaming, Bamba, Bamba. And all the soldiers bring their rifles down and people are screaming and collapsing on the ground. And I'm frozen there, not breathing, waiting to be shot. And the, uh, the shaky pistol presses up against my stomach. And this young cop, who's now totally freaked out, slowly lifts up my sweater. And it takes him a moment to realize it's not a mad bomber. Why have it explosive? It's just an idiot out here smuggling hash. I can see the tension go out of his face. It's like hashish. And he yells to me, hashish, hashish. And he pulls the gun from my stomach. Everybody, the soldiers put their rifles down and people get up. Everybody's so relieved except me, because it was the beginning of a very long five years. So that gets me to the airport. And then they bring me after that to the local lockup police station where they strip me down and search me and do all that kind of stuff. And as I mentioned to Sean, they took me to a little local lockup, which are always worse than the actual prison, a terrible place. And I spent the night in there. And the next day they brought me out to Samajala prison, the big lockup that I spent the next Hold on a minute, Billy. What yeah. was this? What was the search like? And were you aware of the consequences at this point? Um, I was sort of aware of consequences, knowing that people are getting arrested, smuggling drugs and such. But but not me. I'm never going to get arrested. And I've already gotten through this three times. I never thought I would get busted here. And so when I got busted, it was bad enough. Um, but I kept thinking, I'm going to get away. Somehow I'll make this happen. Nobody's going to know. As I mentioned to you, my parents aren't going to know because the last thing I wanted to do. Suddenly I realized what I've done. I've been doing this for a year and a half, every six months, smuggling, running around the world, money in one pocket, hash in the next pocket, getting laid, having fun, not thinking about consequences because I'm not going to get caught. And then suddenly I'm caught. And the consequence of what I've done that I put everybody who loves me, including my mother, in prison. That was really hard. That was the beginning of prison forced me to grow up. I needed to learn a lot of shit about myself. And prison kind of forced me to do that. Um, Billy, how did they, how did they, that first night, that first night in your, in your lockup, I want to yeah. get in your mindset. 
that first night in your lockup, how did how were you treated? Were you fed? Were you just thrown in a room with a no? Pump? The lock, the actual lock, yeah, the actual lockup at the airport was a horrible place. You know, it was just intermediate. People were there for like a couple of hours or a day or so, and then they had to go to the other places. So it was tough. Luckily for me, um, at that actual place, prior to this, I had uh, I met this one of the Turks who was part of this whole thing. Turned out to be sort of a big kapadai, meaning like somebody who ran things in the jail. And he was in that little lockdown place where I was. When I walked in, you know, this door opened, the, the, the guard they just kind of shoved me into this dark room and full of men and stuff. And a couple of guys turn around and they see me at the door and they're all kind of scruffy and beat up. And I'm, all I'm thinking is, holy shit, you know, this, I, I need to deal with this. I'm sort of getting myself ready for whatever's coming. I'm thinking, as always, Eyes or throat. I'm not real big, but I'm real fast. And if you get close enough to fuck with me, I'm going to catch your eye or your throat. And if I do, I know the fight's over. If I hit you in the throat and the fight's not over, I'm really in trouble now. But I was sort of getting ready for this when I hear, William. And I look over and I'm, William. And it's this guy that I had met earlier on the outside. And he's sitting on a blanket with a bunch of other, he's sort of like, he's the, he's the big cheese in here. And they got fruit and vegetables fruit and, and stuff on this blanket. And he's with, around this kind of lording it over a bunch of these circle of these guys. And he invites me over and they're eating all this fruit. And as I approach, I, I smell hash. They're smoking hash in jail. I just been busted for hash and they're sitting there smoking hash, which he turns to me. And I take a hit. Why the fuck not? And I spent my first night in the lockup, stoned out of my mind, sleeping on the stone floor next to these guys, which was sort of good for me because all of the other hyenas would kind of stay away because this guy's the big cheese. So that got me through the first night. Then they take me in the morning to the actual lockup prison or actually late in the afternoon, I get the lockup prison. And if you, if you want, Sean, I can go through that, the, the fight again, but I got. What, to... what I want is the search. Was it a strip search or was it just a pat down? We're going to skip, we're going to skip, we're going to skip the fight because we did it at the okay. beginning, but, but all the detail around it, the, the, the search. Yeah. Yeah. It was, a, it was a strip search at the airport when they busted me. Um, you know, again, standing in the middle of uh, eight or ten cops and things stark naked. It's not the place you really want to be, especially in Turkey. Uh, you know, I don't care what you do, or how you do it or who you do it with. But I'd like to have some choice involved in the situation. And those situations, there's usually not choice involved. So I'm really I'm worried about what's going to come down here. But I make it through the first night and I make it out to the actual lockup and then I get in the lockup in the cell the first night. And as I mentioned, I, I had a fight with this guy that turns out to be the best thing that could happen because I hit him in the face and his nose got all bloody and they took me downstairs and beat my feet and such. But it got me a little bit of rep in the prison that because this guy was sort of big cheese. He walked around with his bloody nose and bloody face and everybody kept saying, what happened to Ziad? And they said, oh, the new guy, Willie. And then they look and they see me. And again, I'm five foot eight or nine, 150 pounds. It's like that guy. But again, they, they gave me a little credit because he had a sort of a badass in the jail and his nose is broken and his face is bloody. So they're thinking, all right, let's find somebody else to mess with. Cause there's always somebody easier to mess with in jail. And it, it held me in good stead for, especially the beginning, the first couple of days, first couple of weeks that I was there, it gave me a little bit of an edge that people kind of left me alone for the most part. 
And that was very helpful to, to get acclimated. So let me ask this. So now you're now you're at your prison and you're being held. Did are were there were there locked cells? Were you were you given clothes? Were you given food? How did your day to day look for you know an inmate like like for us? You know we had a schedule. They handed out toilet paper. You know these are all things that I want to know. Like did did all of this come about? Did you you know did you eat? No, no, I, I hear you. Actually, considering the way things are, I'm I'm happier that I was locked up in Turkey than in the States, just because they kind of lock you in and they throw you in the cell and they lock the door and then you're pretty much on your own. I mean, there's rules and things, but none of them really count. You know, here's the way they tell you, here's the way things are supposed to be. And here's the way they really are. You quickly have to find the difference because you don't want to be in that middle ground. But um, American prisons, from what I know, I've only spent a night in a lockup in Ohio somewhere with a bunch of drunk friends, but it's like seven o'clock, you wake up, seven or five, you shit, seven, 10, you eat, eat, all that scheduled stuff, which would have driven me insane. And we didn't have any of that. They just locked us in there and then you made your own way around. And it, it took a little while to figure out, you know, how things work and where the rules are every morning. They would come to the door with a couple of kids. They had children. There was a children's cell block kids from like 10 to 16 in there, some of whom were in for the most horrific crimes imaginable. These 16-year-old kids in jail for murdering his sister because she was a prostitute and she was disgracing the family. And this kid, they called him Aslan, lion. They, they, they eulogized, they gave this kid so much praise for killing his sister because she was disgracing the family. In fact, he got a lower sentence for killing his sister because it was a, they called it a crime of honor. He was defending the family pride. How did I get on that? Anyway, the kids were in there. We had our own cell block where they kept the foreigners. So for the most part, all the foreign prisoners, all different countries, mixed in with a couple of Turks. But for the most part, all the foreigners were kept together. And that kind of gave us a little bit of an edge. We didn't have to be dealing with the general population all the time. If you'd have to go out to a, a visit or something, obviously you're out in the corridors, you've got to deal with stuff. But as I mentioned to Sean, as foreigners, all the Turks, especially the guards and the prison administration knew if you mess with a foreigner, some council somewhere is going to hear about it. And, the, you know, he's going to say somebody and somebody it's eventually it's going to come down on the guard who fucked with you or whoever else. So that gave us another little edge to just easier to get by. In the morning, they would come by these loaves of bread. There was a bakery down below and we would get loaves of bread, sometimes hot and fresh, sometimes old and cold. They would come through the door and they'd unload the blanket. You had to get down there in time. Otherwise, somebody would snatch up your bread. And at noon, they came around with these big steel pots full of lentils and beans and stuff. Beans. 80 guys locked up together. And every day they serve beans. And then in the evening, we'd come around with uh, some some plates or stuff, a kufta, like a soup with some, some kufta and rice and stuff. That's what the prison gave you. That's what they were required under Turkish law to give you. Then they sold stuff. Prison is this captive market. And they used to have these big outside vendors would come by with these big metal trays full of fruits and vegetables and onions and all kinds of stuff to sell to prisoners. So money, as always, money was so key in jail. If you had money, you could get by. Guys who had no money and nobody on the outside to help them, ooh, that was a hard road. They would have to work doing I don't know. There were a lot of things you could do. If you were a bad enough dude, you'd work with the baddest guy in there and take care of his business. But that put you in a bad spot. Other guys would just 
they would do laundry for people. Some of the big kappa guys, the big gangster guys in jail, they had their own cells. They had people who would come around, shine their shoes, cook food for them. They lived like kings in jail, except they were still locked up. And eventually they were working, working the angles, getting their lawyer here, bribing a judge there. And a lot of these guys would go out. As the foreigners, we didn't know any of that stuff. And we had constantly people saying, you know, telling you, well, you know, I, I know a judge. And if you hire this lawyer, that they'll look, everybody's trying to run a scam on you. And I, I kind of, right away, the guard, one of the Tur- guys from the Turkish American embassy, a Turkish came in and he started showing me this list of Turkish lawyers. Again, I can't even read it. And I, I didn't know what to do. The American council came out. And as I mentioned to Sean, he was trying to explain to me what was happening and what's going to be next. And that's when they left me alone in a little room with a pencil and a piece of paper to write a letter home to my parents. And that's when things got real. That's when I realized I, you know, I just can't fuck around anymore. This is, I've just put everybody I know in the worst situation. And, you know, for the next five years, my my mom cried herself to sleep every night, something that I did. And again, I, I had such good parents. They did not deserve any of the stuff that I put them through. And that, that was the hardest part of jail for me. After a little while, you make your way. You discover who to mess with or who not and where to go and how to take care of yourself. But, you know, she's home every day crying herself to sleep for what I've done. Phew, it's 50 years. I can barely talk about that now. It's so strange. But I mentioned Sean. He and I have both, you know, again, I don't know about you, but most guys getting out of jail don't announce it to the world and don't tell everybody. I didn't have that choice. I got off the plane. There was a hundred reporters at the airport at Kennedy waiting for me. Billy, what's it like to be home? I don't know. I just got here. I haven't even seen my mother. And that was the beginning of a very bizarre transition because I went from being you know, locked up in prison. Once a week, my big media event was mail coming through the slot in the door to now being on all the TV stations, to having a hundred reporters, being on all the newspapers telling my story. By the time I got out to Long Island where my family lived, I lived in Babylon. By the time I got out to Babylon on the island, I was on all of the TV stations. My sister said, Billy, come quick, you're on TV. And there I was at the Kennedy airport with my arm around my dad, which I just needed for just some support, just to have him next to me. And it's like... I haven't seen TV in five years. Much less be on TV. How bizarre is this? I'm going to I'm going to stop you here, Billy, because we're going to, yeah. we're going to get to that in in the All sequence right. of events. Can you describe what it was like trying to get to sleep? Who you were sleeping around? What kind of noises were in the first first year? I was uh, locked up in an individual little cell, about twelve feet long, a little hole in the floor in the back just a little bit wider than my extended arms <laughs> with a metal frame bunk bed of this, with wood slats and this kind of sticky little old mattress. And they had a little fold down table that hooked in the wall and a little seat that hooked up into the wall. And I had a locker here behind me up against the bars and they locked us in there every night, which I hated. I hated being locked in this little cage until I realized I'm locked in, but everybody else is locked out. Like, you know, after a while, actually about the first year, they moved this into a barracks-like setup where you're sleeping and there's people all around you. Nobody's stopping anybody from going anywhere. That made it harder to sleep. My lock-up cage, I could go to sleep in the cage. I could also, 
wow, this is so strange. The shit you start thinking about. I used to be able to have, I have weird hearing. I mean, every time I'd go for hearing tests, you know, you raise your finger when you hear beep and raise your beep. Well, the nurse, after a while, I kept hearing these sounds. She said, you hear that? I said, yeah. And she'd do something. She, you hear that? It was nothing there. I said, no. And she'd play this little tiny sound. I said, that I hear. It was like, I have extraordinary hearing, which is good and bad in jail because it's a noisy place. And But when you get locked down in your cell at night, there's still noise and there's still people yelling here and there or some people singing or playing a guitar or whatever it is. But at some point, the prison goes to sleep and I could sleep, but I could tune in my hearing. There was a certain sound like when the when the, the cell block, we had individual cells, but the cell block itself off the corridor, when that big door downstairs opened, they had to put this big metal key and you could hear it like click, click, click. And then the, when the door got slid open, you knew the sound. Well, I would program my head to ignore people yelling, ignore this, this back and forth. Just, but if I could hear that key in the lock, I woke up instantly because I know somebody's coming in after lockdown and it's not good. It's never good. Once things are locked down, they should stay that way until the morning. And if not, something bad's happening. Guards are coming in for a, they used to do these with the arama, they call it, these searches. And like tear the cell block apart, rip your mattress up for looking for something, just would found out later on, they would take all your shit. They'd take books and things. They would allow books in, but when they do these searches every month or two months, whatever, they take all the damn books. And we don't know why. We discovered later out in the bazaar in Istanbul, it was like a used bookstore. And all the books that they took from the jail, they would be selling to people on the street out there at the used bookstore. But I could, I could sleep pretty well. I could sleep virtually anywhere. And once the door was locked, I could pretty much sleep. I was okay with that. When I got moved to the other cell block where we were all crammed together in these bunk beds about they had like I don't know, 35 bunk beds or so they had 70 beds but there were always 80 90 100 guys so people were always sleeping on the floor or under the bunks or on the tables in the downstairs room that was a little bit more difficult i kind of changed my my tuning in my head for when i'm sleeping to other sounds including that you know a little scraping near your bed or somebody heavy breathing near you and that, that would wake me up right away um, you can you can yeah. ask Sean Billy that that sounds mighty familiar to Sean and I. I bet <laughs> it sounds just like what we went through, does doesn't it, Sean? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And you you get this you get this mindset, this hypersensitive mindset where it's it's pretty much the same. I had it in my head that he was stuck in a hole with a black door, black walls, I guess, you know, from seeing the movie. Right. You know, it, it, except for hearing it now. Right. It's it's pretty much exactly the same, Billy. Yeah, yeah. I think the the prison that they filmed the actual Midnight Stress movie in, um, they used an old uh, Fort St. Elmo on the island of Malta and to use as the prison. The, lo- the Istanbul lockup was a little bit newer than what that prison was because that was built like three, four hundred years ago. But it was still, it was grimy. It was it was dirty. You know, the cell block smelt. <coughs> the <coughs> all the toilets were terrible. I mean, they had <coughs> little little toilets, and it would back up, and it just you guys know, it's like it's just not a nice place to be. <coughs> I very quickly <coughs> got beyond all of that. None of that mattered to me anymore. It's still, you know, every once in a while, I'll be somewhere with my wife, and I'll just sort of forget and sit on something dirty or deal with something dirty. She's like, no, don't touch that. It's like, 
Oh yeah, fine. <laughs> I didn't care. Please, <laughs> please. Prison kind of changes your perspective on things to the point where <clears throat> I tried not to. I have such a fast temper, and I I mentioned the show. I have a real smart mouth, and it got me in so much trouble. It, it would be good to. Uh, to be the class clown and the, they like you and the girls laugh and all. But when you make a smart ass remark, everybody laughs usually except one guy who you just made the smart ass remark about. And now he's looking at you like, mm, I'm going to crush your curly little fucking head as soon as this ends. But I, in jail, I discovered I need to be very careful about making smart ass comments because everything reverberate mistakes in prison are magnified in a way that you don't realize, you know, on the outside, if you don't like somebody, you can argue with them, you can fight with them, or most importantly, you can just turn around and walk away. You can't do that in jail. They are there. You have to deal with the people around you. And that kind of forced me to alter my personality a bit and to try and not be so fast and not be so quick. First off, it's not good for you to get angry and upset all that adrenaline. Secondly, it can lead to some badass places. I would usually find... I'd probably find somebody like Bruno and realize this is a dude I want on my side and I'd make <laughs> friends with him. And now anybody who wants to mess with me, it's like, have you met my friend Bruno? And they leave me alone. I did, had to do that everywhere. Did you find yourself reining it in a lot while you were dealing with the other the other foreigners and were there were there many other Americans? Were there any yeah. well, please explain to me, you know, what what kind of dynamic you had? The prison they kept, they kept the foreigners one separate cell. Again, usually there were 70 or 80, maybe 100, and a couple of Turks mixed in. Usually the Turks were sort of in positions of power to help interact between the foreign prisoners and the guards. Um, I think your question was in, interacting. How many, how many Americans were there? Oh, yeah, yeah. Mostly you know, a lot of Americans. Um, there were always three, four, five, six Americans because there was an American army base <clears throat> fairly close. And there was invariably a couple of army soldiers who were caught buying some hash. If you have the smallest piece of hash back then, it was 20 months in prison. The smallest piece of hash, 20 months in jail. Anything above that, obviously more prison. And But a lot of foreign prisoners. So you had to deal with people with different nationalities and, and different languages and obviously different attitudes towards life and what comes down and that was a learning process for me i had to find out you know if, if there were arab prisoners inside i discovered the the arab prisoners you needed to be very careful because they were had they had hair triggers if you said something wrong suddenly you're dealing with someone you couldn't say anything about religion of course i mean even now today <clears throat> the quickest way to get your throat cut or get your face punched is to mention anything about religion but I kind of had to stay away from that because, geez, I was raised as a Catholic and me and the church kind of separated at puberty. I was also way too logical for religion. I had <laughs> nuns in high school and I would keep asking these questions. It's like after a while, like, well, stop asking all those questions. You take it on faith. It's like anything that couldn't be dealt with through logic, you use fate. Fate. And that's when I realized me and the church are going in different directions. Also, when they, I, I heard that, if you masturbate, that's a mortal sin and you burn in hell forever. Ooh, that's bad. Especially when you're 12, 13 and you just learned about this. It's like, how could you not do it? This is so good. <laughs> then I found out that even if you just think about it, it's a mortal sin and you burn in hell. It's like, wait, wait. 
if I do it, it's a sin and I burn. If I just think about it, it's a sin and I burn. Might as well do it. God damn it. But being in the church separated, and I kind of stayed away from anything <clears throat> religious until prison, where I discovered my spiritual things. There was a part of my nature that I had been ignoring and that became very valuable to me in jail. And I, again, I was doing yoga. I was doing meditation and uh, before jail. And I had the book, Light on Yoga, a classic book from the East, in my backpack that the book, when I was getting through and I told the one cop, oh yeah, this guy already searched me. I'm putting the book back in my shoulder pack. That was Light on Yoga. So I had this book with me in jail and it truly became my salvation. I, I started reading the book. I started doing yoga every day. I have still done it every day. I'm, I've done yoga every day since the middle of 1969. And yoga gave me not only the health, but again, I was 23 when I went in. I was so healthy and so ready for everything. And I, again, I did martial arts. I was a runner and an athlete, all that stuff. But emotionally, I was just so immature that the yoga calmed me down and helped with my physical and even more help with my emotional and help with my spiritual in terms of who am I? Where, where am I in, in this body, in this cell block, in this country, on this earth? in this universe. And I would spread it out a bit and realize what a tiny little insignificant speck mm -hmm. I and the rest of us are. And yet somehow we're connected to all of this. It, it, it was a wonderful perspective for me. And when I could hold it, it was good. And when I got depressed or when, when something was happening and I just, I couldn't deal with it anymore, I would kind of go away and meditate for a while. And I, I discovered there's this, I call it stillness at center. There's a place I can get to oh, <laughs> that I, I would recharge myself. I would kind of reinvigorate myself. And when I would come out of it, I was more ready to deal with my immediate surrounding, which is prison, which was always the principle. You know, you can, you can meditate and do all this kind of stuff, but you have to deal with here and now because prison pretty much puts you in the here and now in a way that you don't really meet on the outside so much it's like you have to deal with this now and you have to deal with it and that was again it forced me to grow up i i learned a lot of stuff i needed to learn in jail because i kept thinking after the first year all right now i've learned my lessons and it's time to go free and then at the second year well now i've really learned my life, time to go free and then the third year and then the fourth year and by the fifth year i was i was so desperate um I just needed somehow to to get out of here. And the escape plans that I'd had. Hold I tried... on, Billy, Billy, yeah. we're not finished yet with the early okay. years. I've got to slow you down again. Stop me, slow me down. I need that. <laughs> you've, you've had this fight that was, a, you know, violence you experienced. The people have left you alone. In that first year or so then, what violence did you witness or were you aware of? Um, uh, one friend of mine, a German guy, Popeye, they called him. He had all these muscle tattoos on his arm and stuff. <clears throat> he was a little bit, he was edgy. He was cheeky. So he was a badass. He could get away with a lot of stuff. So he kind of pushed people and did things and he liked to make fun of guys. And I was, I was a friend with him. Cause I knew he was one of the guys that's like, let's make friends with this guy. Cause not only is he sort of a badass, but he's kind of crazy. So let's make sure he's on my side. And he pissed off a couple of, of Turks in the opposite cell block and uh, Hope you're enjoying the podcast. Here's a word from our sponsor, Harry's. 
Having such a scratchy face, I'm always delighted to get a new Harry's set. There's a foaming gel, hydrating night lotion, and the razor with the weighted handle really gets the job done. The trimmer blade makes it so easy to get into those tricky places to reach. The shave gel offers effective lubrication and just comes off like butter. It's such a smooth shave. It shaves fast, efficiently, no discomfort, and it is so smooth by the end. The hydrating night lotion is light and non-greasy. Harry's is doing a zero pounds trial. Start shaving with the products, just pay for delivery. Save every time. Save on all your shaving products without sacrificing quality. You're in control. You can modify or cancel your plan from the account page. Make sure to support our podcast and start your own skincare journey by redeeming a free Harry's trial set. All you cover is £3.95 for delivery. Just head to harrys.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N, and have your trial set delivered to your door. That's harrys.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Thank you for supporting our sponsor. One day he was eating his lunch and his beans. In the sorry, sorry, Billy. How did he piss them off? Um, by like they were one guy was walking around the courtyard, and this guy was out here. And as the guy walked past, he said something to a couple of the people sitting with us, and they all laughed. And the guy turned around, like, "Is it is it me that they're laughing at?" And you know, people kind of turned their heads away, but he knew we were laughing at him, and he knew that that motherfucker Gary. They they knew. Papa, he was the guy that kind of instigated this. So he kind of had this against him. And then, uh, again, Popeye was eating his, his beans one day, and this guy came into the cell block and shipped him about three times in the back, caught him one in the neck that should have knocked on. Luckily, it just caught the edge. A lot of blood, but not any of the bad stuff. But he had three holes in the back, <clears throat> and he was bleeding, and people are screaming, and the guards are dragging him out. And all of the rest of us are like, holy shit, you know, look at this. And about 10 minutes later, um, people are cleaning up the blood off the floor. And I'm wondering, you know, he's my friend. What am I supposed to do about this? Um, and I see out in the courtyard, this motherfucker who stabbed him is walking around our courtyard. It's like, holy shit. So I ran out into the courtyard to deal with him. It's like, you motherfucker. And somebody said, watch out. And I see his right arm is kind of hanging down and he's got something cupped in his right hand. You guys have seen this before. He's got the knife in his fucking hand and I'm screaming and yelling at him. And I realized, Whoa, what am I doing out here? And then luckily for me, before I had to go up and either back down and walk away from him or confront him more, neither one of which I wanted to do, the guards came rushing in and they dragged us out. And the one guy hit me a few times with a stick. I'm like, you know, stop, get away from this. But they knew this fucker had just stabbed one of the tourists. So they gave him a little bit of a beating and sent him away. Um, let's see, Gary got stabbed. There were always people fighting, which, you know, that comes and it goes. Um, the Across from uh, the cell blocks, <clears throat> again, 100 guys here, 100 guys there, and a cell block, but well, a courtyard in between. And the doors open when they let you out. We'd, we shared the same courtyard with the kids. Again, they had kids in there, maybe like 10 to 16. But these kids were in, they were like street urchins. These kids were in for every crime you could imagine. And they had some really badass kids in there too. You know, you grow up in the streets of Istanbul. If you make it to 16, 
you're, you're doing okay. And uh, that 60 year old kid, Shaban Tokus, he was like a bodybuilder and a weightlifter guy. And he's the one that um, stabbed his sister to death because she was a, a prostitute supporting the family. But uh, they gave him a, they said it was a crime of honor because he was defending the family. And I think he got like 15 years for killing that one person. I got two kilos of hash. I got 15 years per person. He got 58 years for like killing somebody. But uh, he he got into a couple of fights over there. And one of the kids in the cell block was raped. And uh, the guards came in, heard about this. And the guards came in and they brought all the kids out into the courtyard and made them all sit down in the courtyard. And they pulled out two of the, the a lot of long wooden benches. And they put the benches on the ground and they took two or three of the kids, including Shaban, laid them down on their backs, put the, their legs through the bench and turned it over. And the head prison guard came in and started beating their feet with a stick. As an example, he brought his two kids in with him. He he had, hang on one sec. Yes? You gonna be on? Yes. All right. Okay. Had two kids with him who he was showing them <clears throat> what happens to bad children. So the guard comes in, takes up his jacket, pulls or rolls up his sleeves, takes the stick and starts beating these kids under the bench and banging their feet and hitting their legs and hitting their hands when they come up. And his two children are standing there like frozen watching this good lesson that your dad's teaching you uh so the kids got beat i'm just thinking of example of pe- people getting beaten there let, me, let me let me stop right there so yep. uh, a lot of a lot of the a lot of the fighting happened between the inmates can you tell me was there a lot of uh the guards did the guards you know have uh problems with people they take them out would they beat them in front of you would they would there be a lot of abuse in that respect yeah, well, the, the guards, there was a whole structure within the guards, too. Obviously, there were door guards who basically just did the shit jobs, opened the doors. They were All the guards were getting paid virtually nothing, and they were in the same conditions as we were. You know, or you got prisoners around you 24-7 or whatever. They got paid very little, which is why they were so open to bribes. Everything in prison was on bakshish, on the bribe system, everything. If they came to the door with your mail, your mail... Before they would give you the mail, you have to give them a pack. Yeah, Bakshi's give them a pack of cigarettes or whatever. And then they give you your mail. So everything worked like that. And the guards, among themselves, they had a whole strata of guards. And the big, the big guards, the top kind of guys, they took the big bribes. You know, there was a lot of drugs in jail. They came and it went. There were a lot of drugs and then suddenly there was none because they would come in and do a complete cell block and they clear everything out. But there were factions in the prison. Who brings the drugs in? Because it's, you, know, you make a lot of money bringing drugs into prison. Anything illegal you can bring into jail, you can make a lot of money on. But you have to be careful because you get caught. And either you, you well, certainly you get beaten and shit. And then you get charges against you or your sentence gets increased. And there were guys in there who were like finishing up the last year or eight months of their sentence. And they didn't want to get involved in anything like this. And there are other people with you know life sentences who didn't give a shit. And those are the dangerous guys. When people don't care... Obviously, you you got to be real careful of those guys. So I would kind of figure out who's who's crazy today. You know, after a while, I would just look around and I could pretty much predict within the next 24 or some guy would come to the door and no mail and come to the door and no mail. And his lawyer is supposed to come. and He's got a court case and the lawyer doesn't show up. And then they cancel this court case. And I'm watching this guy and I'm realizing somewhere in the next 24 hours, this guy is going to explode. And those people, I kind of keep an extra eye on 
and you stay away from them because they're going to cause a lot of trouble. And again, the guards rush in and whoever's fighting, I've mentioned the shot. If you and I are fighting, if you're all bloody, which I don't know that would happen, but if you were, they beat me all bloody. But if I'm all bloody, they'll beat you all bloody to make it even it out. So you don't have an incentive to fight unless you get in real quick and get out real quick, which again is, it's what I learned in, about, well, even before jail, it's eyes, throat, and balls. I don't care how big a guy is. I don't care how muscled he is. Eyes, throat, balls. If you make that strike first, the fight's over. And if you make it first and the fight's not over, you're you're really in trouble because, you know, this guy doesn't care. And then we're well, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter how tough you are. It's all a perception. Fast forward 50 years later, everything you just mentioned is exactly the same. Yeah. What we went through, same system, just different logistics, different, right. different place. But everything that you just mentioned happens every day. Unfortunately, yes. Yeah, it's the way it is. The way it is. Um, the the weak people, you know, if you're weak, you pray, P-R-E-Y in jail. And the weakest guys in jail would have to hook up with somebody to protect them. And what it costs them to hook up all depends upon what they want to give and what people want to take. But everybody had to have, you know, we didn't, all the foreigners were in one place. And then the all the Turks were in another place. And there were all kinds of factions of the different Turks. But we weren't really part of that. We were just the foreigners. We were the yum-yums locked up in our thing. And we didn't have the whole, you know, like the Aryan Brotherhood here and the Black Panthers, that kind of stuff that I think American jails have in a big way. We didn't really have that. And we were kind of lucky in that respect. That they, they, Again, the guards were a little bit easier on the foreigners. Because again, if, if the guard hurts a foreigner real bad or if a foreigner gets raped somewhere, you know there's an American council coming. You know there's going to be inquiries. Somebody is going to go down for that. So we were we were protected a little bit like that. So you mentioned you mentioned the whole uh, rape thing. That was going to be my next question. Was that was that prevalent there? Was there a lot of that going on that you knew of, or were the guards, or was it inmate inmate? Can you answer that? Most mostly it's it's inmates and power struggling. And again, you know, rape isn't sex. Rape is power. And the different people who are trying to to c- control things and so on they might send somebody out and maybe try and get them raped to teach and pass a lesson around. As I mentioned, I, I kind of lucked out by being in a fight the first night. So they sort of left me alone. And then again, um, I'm, I'm, I always used to say I was way too smart for the tough guys and too tough for the smart guys. So, so I could kind of make my way in between things. But the truth is you have to be really careful when you're out wandering the prison out of the, the cell block eyes in the back of your head. You need to know who's where. You need to be aware, like up ahead, I, I could see up ahead, there's a couple of people in the corridor who I know, I, I don't want to be in between cell blocks when these guys are coming the other direction. So I would either hang back or I'd, you just have to be awake and aware all the time. You, if you If you relax too much in jail, you end up regretting it because while you relax, something bad happens. And you know, the problem I think is, was it stress kills and prison is the ultimate fucking stress 24 hours a day you got stress around you 24 hours a day prison says you're a loser you're a loser you're a loser and eventually you buy that and you kind of you break in ways that you can't change or you, or you get hard 
you know, you get hard. You know what it means. You get hard in a way you're like, you see shit and you just, you can't let it in. You can't let it get to you all the time. And when, when you ignore another human being's pain, it's at a cost to your own humanity in a way. And when you do it enough and for long enough, part of you gets hard in a way that's very hard to change when you get out and to, you know, adapt to the world again. I'm curious, I'm curious, Billy, to get through any sentence, you've got to have a routine. What was your day-to-day activity? Did you have access to recreation, programs, religious services? Did you get a job? Yeah. Well, they, uh, they had a sort of a, a church. Again, this is a Muslim country, but they had one of the little cell blocks somewhere. There was sort of a little bit of a church where people would, could go for services or not. Oh, I just yeah, lost. Keep them. going, keep going. I'm just changing my, I'm just changing my uh, battery. Okay. It, where people could go for services or not. Um, they had work, but they didn't really allow the foreigners to go out and work. They wanted to keep them in the cell block because it was less chance of the foreigners to get in trouble. You know, if you're out there working around the general populace, you're going to end up having to deal with them more. So the the, the Turkish guards, the prisoners prison kept us sort of separate from the rest of the prison in, in a lot of respects, which was good. So, um, so that being said, so basically it was lucky that you were a foreigner and it was lucky that, you know, you kind of, you got that. You did exactly what you were supposed to do, Billy, is from what you were explaining to me, a lot of people don't get that when they go to prison or jail here in America, that you got to realize that if, this guy's having a bad day. You got to be smart enough and have enough common sense that you saw the guy's lawyer didn't come. You saw a building, you saw a building. A lot of the problems today is, is that what Sean and I went through was this one faction has a hold on you, you know, who you could eat with, who you could sleep with, who you could, who you could talk to. And you're forced to deal with people day in and day out where you touched on it as well. That when you, um, you know, you see somebody having a bad day, be smart enough to get away. But you can't walk away from anybody in prison. You cannot walk away from not further than 34 paces coming up against a stone wall. somewhere. It's one of the things I love most when I first went free is to walk. And I would sort of count because my 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 paces up. It was 34 to the wall, turn around, spin, and 34 back to the next one, back and forth, or in the circle, around and around. I can't go to zoos. When I got free, I used to love zoos. I went to the Bronx Zoo when I came out, could not look, couldn't watch the animals in their cages, pacing back and forth. It was like, holy shit, you know, let them out. I, I would have opened every fucking cage. The first, and I've never been to a zoo since. I just can't go near zoos. But yeah, you need to be aware of who's doing what, where, and when. And again, that's stress. You, you constantly, constantly, constantly. You can't just relax. I could, in my meditation, and oh, Sean, you asked me about a routine. That was my routine. I got up every morning. I still wake up before the sun. It's just my body clock. I, I love the morning. I would get up before the prison woke. And when I was locked, when I had the individual cells, I would uh, do my yoga in my cell. Not much room in there, but I could do yoga now in the tiniest, in a little closet. I could find a way to do my yoga postures. When they moved us into the bigger barracks with all the guys together, the only place I could really do yoga was in the downstairs room where they had tables where the, the, uh, the food and such got done. So I would go down and I'd spread a blanket. Didn't have yoga mats then like we have now. I spread a blanket and I would do yoga downstairs. And 
from the book. And every day I would do a series of yoga postures and stop and do some breathing techniques and try and meditate to the point where I calm myself down. I calm my body down. I calm all of these whirling emotions in my head down. And I try and come out of it with connected to this, this stillness at center that I found. And if I could hold that stillness at center while crazy shit was happening around me, that was great. It, it, in fact, it made it easier for me to, to kind of like zen everything off. Somebody would get in my face and I could kind of like just let them go and not, not confront them. Because if you want, if you're looking for a fight, there's always somebody looking for it. And half of them will kick your ass. Maybe not yours, but would kick my ass. So it was like, I didn't mess with people. And I, in fact, I tried to stay away from stuff would be happening. You know, somebody would get something and you, you, people are whispering and somebody else in this little group would be forming somewhere. And it's like, holy shit, something's coming down. And I try and avoid being near that something because Prison fights are kind of like uh, barroom brawls, which I also hate. Shit just starts flying and chairs are going and guys with bottles are coming at you. Like, I hate that stuff. Even when you win a fight in jail, the adrenaline is pumped through your body. It's not good for you to have all that adrenaline pumping through your body. So I tried to stay calm. I still try and stay calm. I, I, I do it a little better now being married for 40 years and not being locked up, but um, I still find times where I can feel my my red needle is going up into the zone. Usually I have my wife next to me, like give me a little elbow or or step on my foot. Like I used to get in these political arguments to the point where like, yeah, mother, something's going to come down. She'd be stepping on my foot, like calm down. And I take a breath and I calm down. <laughs> Billy, a major source of stress is not knowing what's going to happen to you. Yes. How long were you unsentenced for and how did things progress in the court for you? Were you pulled out for hearings, that kind of thing? Yeah. Um, originally, I went to court 14 times. You know, you'd, you'd get in the prison van. The nice thing is you could look out the window and sort of see the outside world. But, you know, you're usually locked up and handcuffed to somebody or two or three guys. At one point, they took us to prison. I know we had like 14 guys in this red prison van. It's you meant the whole maybe five or six and 14 of us are crammed in there. You know, and I'm trying to look out the little window slits in the van just to see some outside world. And, you know, and the guy that I'm handcuffed to pukes. Now I'm like trying to pull away from him. <laughs> and we're driving there. You get to court, you got puke on your shoes and then you wait in the downstairs room an hour, two hours, three hours, four hours. And then somebody will come and say, oh, yeah, your, your lawyer couldn't make it or the court's been changed. And then you go back to the prison and nothing happens. That happened again, 14 times. And I finally got my first sentence, which was four years and two months, which time off for good behavior was like, I don't know, about 40 months or something, which seemed like an eternity for me. That mean, I still had about another two years to do. And that, you know, I, that didn't fit in my head. And I'd already been thinking about escape and talking to people about plans and reading stuff and making my plans. But when that happened, the switch really went on and I, I, spent a lot of time and effort trying to get out and setting up these prison escapes. I actually went to uh, Bakakoy Madhouse. I, I, dis I discovered there's a law in the Turkish books that says if you're judged to be crazy, criminally insane, they can't keep you in jail. But if you're that crazy, they don't let you free. They put you in Bakakoy, which was this 
mental hospital for the, and the ones, it was huge, huge grounds and it'd been around for hundreds of years. One of the barracks, it was a, a used to be a, a barracks for the uh, Sultan's Janissari troops back in the 1700s. That's how old this building was. And it, for the last hundred years, it had been part of this huge Bakakoi hospital. And this was section 13, had barbed wire around it and locked in. And this was for the criminally insane. You got to be pretty bad. No offense, guys, but you got to be pretty bad to do something, to, something wrong, to go to jail, to be, to be in there for a criminally insane offense. You got to do something really bad. And I went to that place because I'd heard about it. I had scuttlebutt. I'd made some plans. I knew if I could get to that madhouse, that'd be a better place for me to escape from. So I, I, uh, I faked being crazy. I had, I had the people in my cell block, a couple of my friends aware that uh, I may be leaving for a couple of days. So if you, you know, you, you see I'm gone, that's cool. Keep a watch on my locker, not that anybody really going to stop it. And I, uh, I dropped some LSD, which you could get smuggled into jail pretty easy. So I dropped this acid and I was waiting. And it was about like eight, nine, 10 o'clock in the morning. I dropped the acid. It started to come on. And I went over, I went, we had, again, steel and stone. I went over to the stairs and I had a little tray with a bunch of stuff on it and I dropped all the stuff and it clattered down and I kind of like rolled down the stairs and stayed there on the bottom and I banged my head into the wall. So this big kind of lump came up and then the, the guy who was running the cell block and somebody else came down and they picked me up and then like, I said, no, no, I'm, I'm okay. And they said, no, no, and then, yeah, your head's bleeding. I said, no, no, I'm fine. And they took me back to my, my, my bunk and they threw me on my bunk and I was like, kind of laying around there and moaning and this blood started to come down off my head. So they, they wanted to take me to the prison doctor. So they, they called the guards and they take me out and they take me down to the prison dispensary. And there's the, the prison doctor with a couple of other prisoners there. And I, I said, I don't need, I'm on fine. I'm on fine. Another, no. They said, well, we need, we need to take you to x-ray head. I said, no, no, I'm fine. I, making like, I don't want to go. I wanted exactly what they wanted. They took me out from there and took me to a local hospital to do an exam on my head and to see what's happening. But what I also discovered is when they're transporting prisoners, they usually assign two soldiers to each prisoner. So if that prisoner escapes, those soldiers do his sentence do the remainder of his sentence. Yeah, that discourages soldiers from taking a bribe and letting you go. I mean, they've got some clever shit going on. And they put me in one hospital and they had two soldiers with me and they, uh, they, they handcuffed me to the bed and a couple of doctors came in and they were shining lights in my eyes. And I'm tripping. I, I don't know how you guys have done much acid, but I'm lowly, totally gone. My eyes are like pinpoints, but I'm still trying to maintain my head and I hurt my head because I wanted to get locked up in this hospital thinking it's got to be easier to get out of the hospital than that goddamn prison I just been in. But the two guards who stayed with me, one guy sat in a chair at the end of the bed. The other guy would come and go with cigarettes and smokes. But at one point I heard the guards saying, you know, I speak at this point, I spoke pretty good Turkish, not that I'd let them know too much, but I understood most of it. And I heard them talking about uh, Tan Yermesin, meaning, do you know? And he says, uh, laissez day, which is the three letters, L-S-D. He said, Tan Yermesin, laissez day? And the one guard said, yeah. And he said, look, guz, guzlar, meaning look at his eyes. And my eyes were like, God. So they're almost on to me, but I'm laying in the hospital bed, chained to the bed, 
acting like I'm totally wrapped in this, but I'm really tripping. So I spent the night in that hospital bed. The doctor said, well, we'll come in the morning and we'll check them again. And by the morning, you know, pretty much the acid is gone, but I've been handcuffed this bed all night. These guards have been kind of up all night. They're not real happy to see me around. And then the guards came in and the doctor said, well, he looks like he's better now. So we'll send him back to the prison, which is what they did. So they chained me up and sent me back to the prison. So I spent 24 hours of the bump on my head, wasted the acid because it was not a very nice trip being chained to the goddamn bed. But it was one of the ways that I was trying to think about escape. It didn't work. I tried something else. I mean, I could talk for a long time on the various things that we tried to do, including an escape down through these catacomb tunnels that they used in the movie. That was actually a short story that I wrote that Oliver Stone, who wrote the script, heard about and used that as one of the, because the uh, prison was built on, Istanbul is an old city and the Romans built uh, aqueducts and catacombs down beneath the city, you know, a thousand years ago, 2000 years ago. So I, my head, I, you could go down and get right through a wall and you'd get into the catacombs and escape. Sounds ridiculous here, but if you're locked up in jail, a lot of ridiculous stuff starts to make a whole lot more sense. And I set that up and I tried to do that and that didn't work. And I tried a couple of things. When I went to Bakakoy to the madhouse, I spent, I don't know, almost three weeks there. And I got examined by the guards there and I told them these crazy stories. And I used to be smart. Now they lock me up and I can't think anymore. Why are you taking notes out of there? Stop taking these fucking notes. And I should have jumped across the desk and bit on the doctor's ear. That might've convinced them. But I was just explaining, I just telling all this stuff. But the thing is, they're asking me questions. I'm answering questions. They ask me a question. I answer the question. If I'd gone crazy, maybe it would have been better, but they just dismissed me. So I spent another week or two there among the, the crazies. And then they sent me back to Samadjala prison. I didn't get a crazy report this time, but I knew because I'd been casing out the madhouse. It was an old wall out back. Again, this place is hundreds of years old. I climbed like a squirrel. I could get up over this. The plaster was out of the brick. I knew I could get up over that wall. But then what do I do? I'm still in Turkey. I got no papers. I got no passport. I knew if I could have a friend come and get on the outside with a car and clothes and money and a false passport, I could get over that old prison wall, the madhouse wall, and escape. So I went back to the local prison. In fact, when I got back to Samadjala prison, I came back, and as soon as I get in, I told all my friends, oh, man, it's so nice to be back here. And they're looking at me like, the fuck are you talking about? Nice to be back here. They hadn't been to Bakakoy. <laughs> you know, if you don't, you don't take advantage of something, you don't realize how nice it is until you lose it, well, Samadjala prison compared to Bakakoy was not so bad. It was a little nicer when I got back there. But my friends are like, you must be crazy. It's like they hadn't been to Bakakoy, but I had. So I planned to get back to Bakakoy and have my friend come, my oldest friend in the world, come and help me. And this is a guy who he was working the fishing boats off Alaska. And he was he was a poet. He was a dreamer. He, he thought he was like a highwayman. He thought he was so street smart but he really wasn't. He just really wasn't. And he came to help me escape and he got a job in the John Deere tractor factory in, in Mannheim, Germany, making good money to, to buy a car get the passport and the false papers and then come to Istanbul. And uh, somewhere in the course of it, I got a telegram from my dad saying that Norman, who's his name was found dead in this hotel room in Mannheim with a big army bayonet through his chest. And in one of the early letters he sent back, he told me how he was, 
in Mannheim and he was working and he was going to get the car and the money. And he mentioned how he was he was boffing this uh, wife of an army sergeant from the nearby army base. Quickest way to get killed is to be messing with another man's wife, especially a guy who's an army soldier. But Norman was one of those guys who women just wouldn't leave him alone. We used to hang around with him just because he'd spout poetry to these strange women on the street he'd never seen before and actually charm them in. And we, we would just pick up the excess. And he was one of those guys. And he was messing with this guy's wife. And, you know, the uh, German officials, first they said it was, it was uh, suicide. He's got this bayonet, a two-foot bayonet through his chest. It wasn't suicide. I'm sure that the guy killed him. I'm just, after reading this letter, that's, I'm sure, not that it mattered to me, he's dead. How it happened, I don't know. But um, when he died, that was pretty much my lowest point in jail. That was when I realized, wow, I fucked up my life. I'm still fucking up my family and my friends. And now my best friend has died because of me. And I turned the escape switch off. I've got, I've still got, you know, I don't know, almost two years, a little less at this point. And I just said, I'll do my time. Fuck this. I mean, I've screwed up so much. I guess that's just what I need to do is chill, spend my time, use it productively if I can. I was studying architecture. I was writing short story, all that kind of stuff you do in jail to keep them going crazy here 24 seven. And I was doing that and life changed for me. As soon as I turned the escape switch off, I was able to, to just live moment by moment, do my yoga, do my, 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 my breathing exercises, stay calm, scratch the days off my calendar, not get involved, stay healthy. And prison changed, life changed during that period. And it was a good thing. I was, I was so much in, in a, such a better place to go back out into the outside world. I was so ready for it. And, uh, I had a big calendar and I was crossing off the days, 56, 55, 54 days prior to going free. I got an unexpected visit from the American Consul, who I'm, I'm thinking, this is, he wasn't supposed to be here. And I'm thinking, yay, the Turks will let me out early. I'm already gone. I'm out. You guys know when you count your days, I was out in my mind. And I'm thinking that and until he comes walking towards me in the visiting room. And just by the look on his face, I know bad news. And I'm worried somebody at home, somebody hurt, somebody sick, bad news for sure. And then he explained that the high court in Ankara responding to Richard Nixon and the war on drugs, pressure in Turkey into increasing their drug penalties. And Turkey said, fine, you want to see us increase our penalties? And they did. And they changed my sentence to life. And a couple of American women and another, another American guy a few months later got life sentences too, to show the American government that Turkey is enforcing their drug laws. Again, drugs are such a big, bad thing back then. Now they're legal. Now I'm working with a cannabis company. Now people are smoking cannabis and realizing this, you can heal yourself with this. It's, it was so, the idiocy of drug laws were incredible to me. But at that point, let me just chill and wait. Um, and then suddenly I'm now looking at the rest of my life in jail again. And the escape switch slammed back on. And it took me another six months. It took about, about another 18 months in this Sajala prison before I was able to get myself transferred. Now, by now I've gotten the, uh, you know, there's a whole series. You get arrested, you go to jail, there's one court, then there's something here. And then something happens and you go to another court. It takes fucking forever. And then somebody's got to sign these papers and it goes to the higher court. All that bullshit was happening. While I'm still here, still thinking about getting out, and 18 months after the 
sentence got changed. I got myself transferred to an island prison uh, in Raleigh Island. And I knew from people who had been there in the scuttlebutt, it was a work island. It was uh, 26 kilometers, 17 miles off the coast of Asia Minor. It was this island prison. It was a work island. They had a factory on the island. The boats would come over from the mainland, these small boats full of uh, produce. And they have incredible fruits and things in, in Turkey. And they would unload all these produce. And we'd carry these 50 kilo sacks of beans and fruit and shit up to the canning factory where the prisoners were, cheap labor. And we would make canned stuff and then carry the cans back to the boats. And then the boats would take off because they were never allowed to spend the night on the prison island because it's a prison island. But one day I noticed a big storm was building out at sea and these boats were all anchoring for the night. At first, I, I was used to be an ocean lifeguard. I'm a really good swimmer. But my thought was to swim. But 17 miles after five years in prison, that's, that's not going to happen. But when I saw these boats and each boat had a little dinghy tied up behind it. And I thought, that's my way out. So I waited till the next storm arranged so that I could get out past the, the uh, like, whatever, nine o'clock bed check. So you guys all know this. I, I ended up working a couple of copadies, the big gangster prisoners. They would, after bed check, they'd all gather down in the accounting shed where these two guys with, with adding machines would tote up the day's canning factory and stuff. And they would party. They would smoke joints. They'd be drinking Rocky and knocking down dominoes and stuff. And I... Met, I met the, the badass who ran this. I became friends with him. I spoke with Turkish by now. I'm the only foreigner in the island. And so I would be able to go down to the accounting shed. I tell the guard, you know, uh, Ahmet told me I could do it. And Ahmet's word is law. You know, he's the big copy guy. So I would go down there and I'd hang with Ahmet and these guys in the, in the, the accounting shed. And a storm blew up one morning, really, really big. And I mean, it was raining and shit. And we were still working in the canning factory. And by the end of the afternoon, the storm was howling out there that we all went back to our barracks and I waited in the barracks until night bed check came. And I went down to the accounting shed. Everybody else is locked in and I'm here with the guys and the storm is still blowing. And after a little while, you know, I said, I, I, I don't feel so good. I'm said, Oh, ha have some hash. I said, no, I don't want to here. Have some Rocky. No, no, no. I don't want I just need to go back to my cell block and rest. Right. Instead of going back to the cell block and make my way down through the wind and rain on the cobblestone to the harbor and underneath this wooden overhang where they had these big empty concrete vats that they used the whole tomato paste. And I hide in one of these vats waiting for the prison to calm down, making sure nobody else is around, thrilled to be this close to escaping and scared shitless because there's no turning back now. And if you get caught escaping, they can beat you within an inch of your life and the council can't say shit. Because you, you know, you attempted to escape, but uh, I waited in the vat. And actually, I, at one point, I lifted my leg up. I was starting to climb out of the vat when I heard this noise, this clattering on the stone beach. And I dropped down into the vat, and I hear these clattering on the rocks, getting closer. And this guard out here in the night—it's raining. He doesn't want to be out. He comes in under the overhang to get out of the rain, and I, 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 I'm down on the bottom, huddled up, hardly breathing. And I see this little flare of a match as he lights a cigarette. I can smell the smoke. He's standing right next to me on the other side of the wall. I'm thinking stone, inanimate object, no human vibrations. And after a while, this guy clattered away and I lifted my leg to the top of the rock. I heard another noise. I dropped. I realized after a while, I just need to do this. So I went up on the top of the rock and I dropped down and I started crawling on my, my belly down through the mud and rocks down towards the water. And I'd flatten into the muck. They had a searchlight on the end of the pier. There was two piers out into the water. There was a searchlight in the other one that circled around and, 
you know, it would circle the shore. When it got close, I dropped down into the mud again. I have my lucky hat that I've had since, God, 1969, Pamplona. I had bull sweat on that lucky hat. And, I had my hat up. and then the light would go past, and I made my way to the water and, like, went right in into the cold water, breaststroking out. Again, I'm a swimmer. That's not the problem. What I'm worried about is somebody on one of these boats anchored here is going to see me, or one of the guards out in the end of the pier with a machine gun is going to see me and blow me out of the water. But I made it out past the first couple of boats, and I dragged myself over the edge of one little dinghy, collapsed in the bottom, and I was shivering there and huddled up, and um, the, 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 the line is holding the boat up to the other boat, and I take out this knife, a knife that I'd stolen from the canning factory two months before, because you got to have a knife in jail. And I had this knife from the canning factory. So I'm leaning up and I'm cutting the rope on this rowboat. And it's, it's a big, thick, wet hemp rope. And the motherfucker won't cut. And I'm cutting and cutting and it won't cut. And then and, and cut away, cut away. And suddenly the rope cuts and it breaks and the dinghy starts to swirl away back towards the guards and the rocks and the guns. So I, I grab the oars on the rowboat and realize they don't have or locks on a Turkish dinghy. They've got these wooden pegs in the rail, big thick pretzel of rope around the oar. Somehow you hook it on the thing and you put it this way. You know, I can't figure it out, but I rock it back and forth and panic is right there. I slow the panic down and slowly pull the oars and the dinghy stops drifting and slowly, slowly starts moving out past the other boats, away from the prison out of the harbor and I kept concentrating and rowing and pull it and pull it. And at one point I kind of looked up and I realized I was past the last of the boats out into the open sea. I'm free. I almost dropped it more. I almost, I almost fell out of the boat, but I was free. But the first time in five years, I'm beyond the bounds. The feeling just sitting here now is so incredible, but I'm still 27 kilometers from the mainland of Asia Minor and hundreds of miles of real freedom. But at that point, nobody was telling me what to do. I had, I would, I was free again in a way that I had not been for five years. And it was an incredible feeling. I, at first, I knew that I had studied maps and I, you know, all kinds of stuff inside. I knew I needed to get from Imrali Island, which is sort of a little horseshoe, about off the coast of Asia Minor, but I knew I needed to basically row directly east to hit the shoreline at Asia Minor. The current comes down from the north, from Istanbul, and sweeps all the way down into the Dardanelles. I knew I couldn't get swept too far south, otherwise I'd be swept away. So I needed to make it across the current, and I knew the current was coming down from this direction, and I'm, I'm pulling harder on my right oar to keep the, the boat going in the right direction. My my right hand gets all bloody and I wrap a handkerchief around. I don't care. I'm just, I'm so close. And I rode all through the night. At first, because the, uh, Sean, you got to stop me at some point because I'm rolling out of this road. Because no, the, you're on fire, man. Keep going. Oh, this is brilliant. Oh, 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 it's better than the, the movie. <laughs> well, it is. They didn't even do the escape in the movie. The one thing I knew that they do the real escape, they didn't do it. They had me kill a guard put on his uniform and skip out the door. If it was that easy, it wouldn't have taken me five years. But I know that the, the prison is like a horseshoe and I knew the lights of the horse. So I know if I lost the lights of the prison, I drifted too far south. So I needed to pull the right oar and keep going to keep in a line. Across. And after a little while, I, you know, I pretty much was lost out here. I lost the lights. I'm out here in the rainy night. I'm, I'm, I'm pulling and I'm chanting to myself, they catch me, they beat me make it i'm free catch me and i'm rowing and i'm stroking out here 
I, you know, I wrote a thousand fucking miles to get free. I was young, I was healthy, and I was motivated to keep it. But after a while, I just, I was so out of it, and I'm rowing, stroking, stroking. And suddenly the, the, the dinghy scrapes down on the sand, and a wave lifts us up. We scrape down again, and I look up through the misty darkness, and I see this wild, rugged coastline. I realize, I made it, I made it. I jumped out, I pulled the little dinghy up onto the beach. I should have sunk it. I mean, I literally should have put a hole in the bottom and sunk the boat. But I love this little dinghy. I was, I was hugging the bow of this little dinghy that got me to freedom. I started running up along the coast, uh, up north along the coast of Asia Minor. It was truly the finest morning of my life. I know from my maps, I know everything else. I need, what I also know is that pretty soon, on Morelli Island, they, they lock you down at night and they open their cells in the morning and then you go out to wherever you're working and doing stuff. And I know that morning, they're going to unlock the cell and they'll do a head count and I'll be missing. Then I have to count everybody again and I'll still be missing. Then they have to start looking around the islands. There's guys would show up in some shed somewhere. At one point, guys, two guys were missing and they, they found them on the other side of the island. Somehow they had stolen two big tractor tires over off some tractors and were putting planks of wood on them, trying to push this makeshift raft out in, through the waves and the guards. Like the guards literally come over the hill and looked at these guys down here trying to pull this raft. I'm here, story that I heard later. And of course, the guards came down with sticks to beat them. And the, the guys kept pushing their raft. They're trying to get away in the waves of pushing them back in. And the guards stood on the beach for about five or 10 minutes while these guys figured out the guards aren't going to get wet. Not yet, waiting to see what these guys are going to do. And after a while, the guys said, uh, fuck it. So they came in and the guards beat them up a little bit and threw them. But that happened all the time. I knew, my point is, I knew I had some time. And this is 1975, Turkey. They don't have cell phones. They don't have quick alarms. There was gonna, somebody was going to have to crank up the phone and tell somebody here, and then they tell somebody there. So I had time, but the clock was running. So I made my way up the beach, and I, I got to a little small town, and uh, I knew I needed to get up the coast. I knew I needed to get back to Istanbul. My plan was to get to Istanbul. I had a friend in jail who I had, I'd saved from a real bad beating once a guy he he owed me and he was one of these guys that I think he he would have he would have uh, paid his debt because I, I I you know it was a bad situation for him but I got him out of so I he'd hang me out he was working as an assistant manager in some little flea bag hotel in Istanbul and he spoke great Turkish he'd become a Muslim and I knew if I got there He'd hide me out for a few days and we'd get some false papers and I'd slip quietly out of the country. But when I get to the hotel, the little hotel manager, he says, oh, Wolfgang, Wolfie, no, he left yesterday, Afghanistan. It's like, oh no, that's the end of my plan A. I wanted to fall on the ground and collapse and cry, but you know that wouldn't have helped. But I really did want to cry. So now I'm out wandering the streets of Istanbul and, uh, you know, it's I'm, I'm exhausted and exhilarated at the same time. I'm free. I'm walking the street. I'm smelling food and things and women and hair and dogs and perfume. And I really hair. I, back then, I got had this really blonde hair and a blonde mustache back then. So I went to a drugstore and I bought some Cial Renkaboya, black hair dye. And I checked into a little funky hotel by the down by the waterfront. And the guy at the desk, he said, uh, you know, where's your where's your luggage? I said, uh. It got stolen. He said, where's your passport? I said, it was in my luggage. He looks at me like, hmm. So he charged me about three times, whatever it was. But I had money in my pocket. I'd gotten money back on the other side from my dad who wired me money. And so I got this one little funky little hotel room and locked myself in the room. And uh, 
kind of spent the night in there listening for footsteps on the stairs, ready to jump out the back window at the sound of anybody on the stairs, just exhausted. But at dawn, I woke up and I made my way to the bus station in Istanbul and I caught a bus to Edirne, which is a couple of hundred miles east of, uh, west of Istanbul on the Maritza River that flows down from Bulgaria, separate Turkey from Greece. And that's the border, the river. It shifted over the years. Like sometimes there was a big bend in the river and then a storm would come and the bend would change. So the land is like, now there was a railroad track that went over where the bend was. And guys said, if you jump off before the bend, you're now in Greece. And so it was a Turk, all this prison scuttlebutt shit that you know about. But I knew if I could get to Greece, they would never, they've been enemies for a thousand years. They'll never send me back to Turkey. And I made my way to this little town and I uh, got out in a, a, a local cab stand. I found a young, long-haired, uh, Turkey, young, long-haired Turkish cab driver who had this old blue Buick. They had all these old beat-up American cars in Turkey back then in the early 70s. And uh, I, I, I told him, I, I, I said, uh, I, I'm here with some friends who were, were camping at the campground down by the river, which I want to find because I know it's out here somewhere. And first thing he said was, uh, where did you learn Turkish? I said, uh, in prison in Istanbul. He said, for hashish? I said, yeah. He said, you want to buy some hashish? I said, no, no, no. I don't want any hashish. I just need to get to the campground. So we drove south for a bunch of miles through little towns and villages and stuff. And uh, we stopped in one little town. And this guy yelled out to some people at a bus stand for directions to the campground. And I see a, there's a lady with a newspaper. And the whole front of the newspaper is a pen and ink drawing, multicolors of this muscle-bound, I should look like this, blonde-haired guy with a big knife cutting a rope on a rowboat in a stormy sea. Like, that's holy shit. Go, go, go. So we drove further. We went around some bed and the guy, the kid stopped again and he yelled up to some people on, on a wooden porch of the Taberna for directions to the campground. And this big guy in a blue uniform with a tie hanging loose and a beer bottle in his hand saunters down the steps. He's an off-duty Turkish cop. He leans in the window. I can smell the beer on his breath. He says, no fucking campground here. And I'm telling the kids, go, go, go. We drove and we drove. And finally, the, the, the dirt road, I mean, the, the regular road petered out, became dirt. And the, the dirt got so bad, the kids stopped. He wouldn't go any further. And I said, oh, no, I gave him the last of my Turkish money. I said, I know the campground is just up ahead here somewhere. And he drove a little ways and he stopped at the edge of this dry cornfield. And I got out and actually, that's when I, I actually gave him the last few Turkish lira that I had because I didn't ever want to have to use Turkish lira again, certainly not soon. And uh, I wished him uh, like uh, Alas, Alas Maladuk, which is, you know, a Turkish go with God kind of thing. And there are a lot of things, a lot of phrases in Arabic and in Turkish. If you say this phrase, they're sort of obliged to say the phrase back, you know, go with God, go with God. So I said, go with God. And he said, go with God. And then he stopped. And he, he tried to talk me out of it. He said, it's not good for a tourist, foreigner, to be out here at night by yourself. It's dangerous. It's like, yeah, thanks. I said, it's okay. I'll find my friends. So he drove off the trail in his plume of dust. And I dropped down in the corn, waiting. I was waiting for the darkness to fall. And uh, mosquitoes are buzzing on me. I didn't, I didn't even slap them. It's like... Drink my blood now, you Turkish mosquito. This is the last chance you're going to get to drink my blood. And when finally it got dark enough and the stars started to come out, I came up out of the cornfield and sort of make my, up, my way up and down these, these rocky hills and shit. And I was trying to not make too much noise, but the, my stones were skidding out from under my feet. At one point, 
one point I heard dogs barking. I thought, oh my God, fucking dogs, 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 no dogs, please don't have dogs. And I, I, I got to a big tree and I, I tore off my sneakers and my dirty socks, buried them at the base of this tree thinking, smell these, you dog, get your noses blown out. And my socks and sneakers were smelling pretty bad at this point. And I climbed up the tree and shinned out on a branch a little, dropped down and scurried away. <laughs> Now I'm walking barefoot and my feet are getting all chewed up, but I don't care. I'm so close now. I know I'm so close. And later on, I came out of the woods and I, I came to what was like a murky, swampy place, which is good. I'm looking for the river. Now it's getting muddy and swampy and I'm in the dark trees and I make my way through these trees and the branches are whacking me. And at one point, I, I thought I saw metal glint off to the right and I headed over in that direction until I saw tanks crouched down in the woods. Like, this is a border between Turkey and Greece. There were tanks in the woods. It's like, no, no, no. I went the other direction. The woods are getting thicker. And, but now, though, but the sound, I hear the sound. It's running water. And I'm going through the trees. And the branches are whacking me. And suddenly, I open some branches. And there's, there's black water rushing in front of me. I can barely see anything. But I, I slowly make my way in up to my knees, up to my waist. And again, I'm a swimmer. I'm ready to swim. And suddenly, the water is going down. And I make it across and I think I, I made it, but it just couldn't be that easy. And it's not. I'm on a little island just off the coast. <laughs> I push through some bushes. There's the real river spread out under the starlight coming down from the Bulgarian mountains to the Aegean Sea. And I know on the other side, freedom. At least I think it's freedom. I told you the rivers change over the years, the borders change, but I know that's how close I am. So I, I waded into the water. I, I rested a little bit, pulling some stickers out of my feet and sort of gathering up my courage. But I know I'm there. I'm right at the point now. So I'm into the water and swimming. The, the river sweeps me away. Again, I'm a swimmer. I'm not worried about this part. I'm worried about somebody on either side with a gun shooting me because I'm swimming across a forbidden. This is a forbidden military zone. By the way, nobody's supposed to be in here except the soldiers. And I make my way across the river and my, my, my knee hits a rock and I drag myself up onto the riverbank on the other side, collapse on my back, staring up at the stars. And this giddy burst of laughter just burst up out of me. And I spent the next couple of hours wandering through the woods. <clears throat> I'm cold and I'm wet and I'm tired, but I know I'm there and I'm so close, but I wasn't exactly sure this was Greece. And I didn't want to go up to the first guy and have him be a Turkish border guard. So I was avoiding people. So at one point, just before dawn, the sky was sort of lightning behind me. I came out of the woods, this little dirt road. And I know I shouldn't be on it, but it feels so good on my battered feet. But I walk a little ways and I can see up ahead, sort of like a, the road goes to like a little tunnel in the trees. And I said, I'm going to get back into the woods right past that tunnel. And as I walk past what looked like a little kiosk or an outhouse, and as I passed it, this bayonet slashed down in front of my face. And you put your hands up when a bayonet on the front of you, you do this. And this, this guard yelled something. And I realized I, I didn't understand him. And he yelled again. And I realized I speak good Turkish by now, which means you speak good Greek, which means I made it. I made it. I collapsed on the ground with this big shitty grin on my face. And the soldiers blowing his whistle and all the other soldiers come around and they're all pointing guns at me. And this one captain guy sticks his pistol in the light. And he says, who are you? Who are you? I said, I'm an American. I just escaped from Turkey. <laughs> Which the Greeks, they were, they were so nice to me. Again, any enemy of the Turk, they kept me in this little room in the woods for, I think, 12 days. I could do 12 days standing on my head after five years in Turkish jail. And they treated me nice. Um, the American consul 
all they knew from the Turks that, that Billy Hayes is missing and a, a rowboat was found on the opposite shore and nobody knows where I am. And the American council had no idea what was happening. So the Greeks, they let me, uh, they let me make a phone call and I called the guy at the American embassy who, his name, uh, McCumber. Bill McCumber is one of the, uh, the original guys who watched out for us in jail. And uh, he heard me get on the phone and it was like, oh, where were I? I said, I, I, I escaped. But like, this is the council, like, you what? I said, I escaped, I'm in Greece, I'm in Greece, and blah, blah, blah. So um, they, the American council came to the little lockup in the woods in, in where the army base was, where they had me, and they, they took me out and uh, got me a, another passport I got this black hair that I dyed myself. And, and I forgot put that part of the story. I dyed my hair at the Istanbul hotel room with this black hair. And they took me out and got me a new passport, which I still had. You probably have a picture of someone with this black, black hair. When I dyed my hair black, it, it, it was nasty and lank, but at least it looked real. When I dyed the mustache, it looked so phony, like this big chunk of black licorice on my upper lip. I went back out, bought a razor, and shaved this off. Now I got this lank black hair and this raw space kind of outlined in black. I was a mess. But uh, it got me through and it got me across the river and got me off over there. And when the uh, American consul finally uh, took me out and my dad wired some money and uh, the first plane out was leaving and heading towards Amsterdam. And I said, if I'm going to be free anywhere in the world, it will be Amsterdam. And I did. I got on the plane and just actually just before I was getting on the plane, the American consul came running up. He said, wait, wait, wait. We realized there's a extradition treaty between Germany and, um, and the, the plane went to Frankfurt and Amsterdam. And, and then they said, if you land in Frankfurt, the German government might arrest you and send you back to Turkey. I said, oh, shit, what should I do? They said, we'll take you back to the lockup here. You'll spend one more night here, and then we'll drive you down to Athens, and you'll fly out the next day, which seemed logical. But I've been moving forward since I got off the island, and I just didn't want to stop moving forward. And I got my passport in my hand, and I got my ticket in my other hand. And I said, fuck it, I'm getting on the plane. And he said, okay, but, you know, if they catch you in Germany, it's like, you know, I'm going to do it. And as soon as the plane left the ground, I thought, what am I doing? But when I got to Amsterdam, no, when I got to Frankfurt, they had a transit lounge where people tr transferring plane. You don't actually go through customs. You, you, you get off, you're in the transit line, you get somewhere else. And the first plane leaving Frankfurt was going to Amsterdam. And that's the one I said, ticket. I bought that ticket. I flew to Amsterdam, um, got off the plane, got on a bus like any other free man. Oh, I just say in those words, make my, my eyes tear up. Any other free man in the bus took us into, into Amsterdam and I got off the bus and started wandering the cobblestone streets a little bit. And I heard this uh, funky Wilson Pickett music. Mustang Sally leads me into this little hotel bar. And I got a room in there and I, they had a little uh, pastry shop or something down in, in the bar. And I got my first real food on the outside, which was an order of peach pancakes and a strawberry ice cream soda. Oh, God, it was heaven. It was heaven. I ate the whole thing. The, the waitress came over. I said, do it again. So my first real food and freedom was two orders of peach pancakes and two ice cream sodas. And later I wander in the, uh, the streets of, of Amsterdam and the, the back alleys and the canals and all these little 
lit up picture windows, a red light district, where all these beautiful women are lounging around in, in satin sheets and half dressed. You know, I, I haven't been with a woman in five years, but I actually, I, I didn't even want to go in. I was so amazed just standing at the window, looking at them. They looked so wonderful. And after a while, they do a little stuff and they realize I'm just a fucking gawker and not a buyer. They come to the window, smile sweetly, close the drapes, and I'd move to the next window. <laughs> I loved Amsterdam. And after five days, uh, I had my dad wired some more money and I got on a on a plane, which um, landed at Kennedy Airport, I was, again, expecting and looking forward to a nice, quiet re-entry into life. And instead, when I got off the plane, literally at the airport, there were 100 reporters having a press conference. People screaming, lights question, Billy, what's it feel like to be home? I don't know. I just got here. Haven't even seen my mom. And that never stopped. I mean, I'm still talking about it 50 years later. But as a writer... I wanted to write my first book. I went to Marquette and, you know, I was going to be a writer. So I got home on a Friday. By Monday, I was meeting literary agents and I picked one among a couple. And I liked this guy immensely. And I ended up starting to write the book. And that pretty much occupied 24-7 for the next four months because I had to deal with the publisher. If you get the book done in four months, because it was a big story, it was in all the newspapers and all the radios. And... Uh, he, they, they gave me a deal that they said, if you could finish the E.P. Dutton was the publisher then. I wish I had now. It's hard to self-publish shit. You got to come on all the blogs and put your book up. There's my book. And try and sell your book. Well, you got a publisher. They do it for you. But they, uh, they made us a deal where they said, if you get this thing finished in four months, they offered me a, a better deal on the paperback version of this, which I'm sure they never thought we get this book finished in four months. But I got it finished in four months. I got a better deal. I think I got like an extra 12% or 12 points on the paperback, which turned out to be a lot of money at the time because when the movie Midnight Express, the book did fine, the book did good, but when the movie came out, fucking book, yeah. it just it exploded, which was good for me. And you guys know coming out of jail, hard to get a job, you know, previous employment, the last five years, convict doesn't get you a lot of work. And, but this saved me. It gave me money to reorient into life again and the book itself led to so many things, so many other things. I should stop now, Sean. I'm sure. I got to tell yeah. you. I'm Go. going to say something to you. Go. You know, you know, Billy, I've been, and again, I'm not trying to, you know. I know. It's kind of upsetting to me the way I'm going to put this, but I want to tell you from a guy who's been all over the place, locked up most of my life, that story that you just told me, has got to be, you have got to be, have the most, the biggest balls I've ever seen in my, and heard in my life. I read your book. I watched the movie, obviously, but right. the, the immense amount of balls that you have, what you did, and what you just explained, you got nothing but my utmost respect. I, I have never power. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. Um, desperate men do desperate things, and I was so desperate. Desperate to the point where I'm either going to escape and be free or I'm going to be dead, but I'm not going back to jail. I don't know how people do. I did five years. I can barely fit it in my head. I have friends who have done a lot more, a lot more. I don't know how they made it through. I have friends who did. One guy was in for 29 years, a fucking cannabis. For, and he came out and he's like, he's a, he's a, 
sparkling human being. He has a boat, he fishes, he's smiling. He's, you know, I don't know how he did it. I don't know how he survived 29 years in jail. So for you guys, halal as soon as they say in Turkey, you know, good for you. Because I know both of you went through some long, tough times too. I read hard times. What a bitch. <laughs> what a bitch. Holy shit. <laughs> you should have stayed dealing your goddamn uh, ecstasy and doing those raves. Not getting busted, but you know that show. <laughs> and you probably had the same. <laughs> Billy, what, watching, the, watching the movie, the scene that haunts me to this day is in the madhouse when all the mental patients are just walking in a circle all walking day. The wheel. How realistic was that? Totally. <laughs> totally. Interesting, because when I wrote the book, I had this guy, <clears throat> Bill Hoffer, who my, my agent put with me because he said you know you need someone to organize you and I said oh I'm fine I'm a writer I went to market journalism I so wanted someone to help me organize this shit to like I don't I don't know where to start and emotionally I would get into stuff and I would get lost so I worked with Bill Hoffer and he he sat me down and we talked for three days and he had me a tape recorder and we had me talking which I can do into a tape recorder for three days and then we had somebody transcribe it and cut it all up And so now we have all of this kind of a a bit of an outline. And I knew the book starts here. It ends there. Now, all we have to do is fill in the middle, which which is what we did. But getting out and getting into writing the book was it became the therapy I desperately needed coming out of prison. And it 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 forced me to confront a lot of stuff. I wanted to forget about jail. But Bill Bill kept pushing me and. I wrote a bunch of letters to people. I've got, let's see, three. I wrote Midnight Express. Ten years later, I wrote Midnight Return, which is sort of the sequel of what happened next, and explain why, you know, I couldn't say everything in Midnight Express. In the first book, all I could talk about was the fourth trip and prison and escape. The first three trips, I couldn't talk about, which my lawyer, I said when I came out, I told my lawyer, you know, I want to I want to tell the whole story. And he said, no, no, wait a second. So you want to say publicly to the United States government, that you smuggled hash three times from Istanbul to New York prior to getting arrested on your fourth trip. Is that correct? I said, yeah. He said, great. One more question. Are you out of your fucking mind? You can't say that. I said, yeah. I can say that. They can't prove nothing. They don't have proof. He said, they don't need proof. You're an escaped convict drug smuggler. Turkey's going to ask for your extradition. And the U.S. government, depending upon how they feel about you, is going to say yes or no. And you want to say to the government three times, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, I smuggled hash. He said, you can't say it. You can't say it to anybody. So I literally, the first couple of years, couldn't mention that I'd made three prior trips. So all they knew, and all Oliver Stone and Alan Parker, who made the movie, knew was the fourth trip. So they they wrote the movie, and they, they made the film, and and I don't know where I am. I got lost here, smuggled. I forgot what the question was. The Madhouse. Oh, man. the Madhouse. Goddamn. Well, I was writing the book with Hoffer. He kept forcing me. I'd, I'd write a couple of chapters. I'd send it to him. He'd put a red pencil. He'd ask questions. And we had all these letters that I wrote to people. I mean, thousands of letters. I had a lot of time to write in jail. I was there for like, I think, 15, 1573 days or something like that. I wrote a letter every day, two letters every day. So people gave me the letters back. I used them. And I put them away in the attic for 25 years. And then one day my wife made me clear out the attic. And I took these boxes of these old moldy letters and put them out on the curb for the garbage. And she made me come out and take the letters back, which I mentioned to my friend who was also my lawyer. And he said, what letters? I said, moldy old crumpled up yellow letters. He said, well, let me read a few. So he read a few and he said, you need to take all these letters, annotate them, fix them up, 
do not change a single word. And therein lies the rub <laughs> to read what you think you know about life at 22 and 23 in jail. Like some of these letters, like I was so embarrassed, but you know what? The book works because you can read the early letters was the same idiot bravado that got me busted. But as the years and the tears and the weight, the letters changed as I changed. I needed jail so much. I was, it, I really needed to learn what I needed in jail. But again, after a year, I think I'm done. I'm out. After two years, I'm done. But when I finally got to that point, um, I, I had finished everything in the book, but chapter nine, which is the chapter about the madhouse. And Bill kept saying, we're done. You're done. You need to do fucking chapter nine, the madhouse chapter, which I've been avoiding because I didn't want to go back there. But when I finally did it and I sat down in about two hours, I knocked the whole chapter out. He hardly had any red pens or anything. It was it was good. One it was one place where I got hoisted on my own letters because I wrote some stuff and then Bill said, "So look, I'm I'm reading what you said and here you say uh, this is uh, blah blah blah." But I'm looking at the letter from that period around the same time, and in the letters you're saying D D D, not blah blah blah. So what I need is I need the kid who was in jail who said D D D. I don't need the guy who's out and free and he's a celebrity and he's getting laid every day. That's not, you got to go back there in your mind, in your emotions. And I said, I don't want to. He said, I know, but you do. We got one more chance. So I went back to the madhouse and it just flowed. Two, two hours, the whole chapter was done. And we, we put the book out. And the book, before it was even finished, Hollywood somehow, a producer named Peter Goober, somehow got a galley, not even a finished book, but an early galley from Dutton somewhere and read it and loved it. Next thing I know, my agent said, uh, Billy, a producer from Hollywood, Peter Goober wants to fly you out there and talk about doing a movie. It's like, I've been in jail eating beans for five years. Now I'm going to Hollywood. Do This sounded so bizarre, but it was wonderful. And I got there and they dined me and wined me. And, you know, I'm hanging out with some of the secretaries or the guys. And it was lovely. And then they put me in a room with um, Oliver Stone who was crazy and even crazier than he is now. I loved it. I mean, I loved his energy, but he was, we were at the May, May, Mayfair Hotel in New York. Uh, he was smoking joints, snorting coke, doing, I don't do coke. That's not my, I wake up in fifth gear. That's just not my draw. I like to smoke weed. I don't even drink alcohol, but he was crazy. We sent a week there and he finished up and I said, so what happens now? He said, now it's like your child. You finish up and you, you send your child out into the world. That's what happens when you give your script to the studio because now it's out of your hands. I told, I asked my agent in the beginning, I said, so suppose I don't like what they do with this. I signed the contract and they gave me some initial money, which was great. And he said, well, there's a clause in your script that says, if you don't like the final product, you can have them take your name off the book or off the promotion for the film. I said, really? He said, that's what the contract says, but they're using your name to promote the goddamn movie. They got 12 lawyers sitting back at Columbia, picking their noses, waiting for somebody to send out for a lawsuit. He said, you sign the contract, you get what you get. So I was real lucky that I got the film that I got. I mean, they made changes I didn't like, but the film was brilliant. And Oliver Stone, he, he wrote a good script, even made changes that I didn't like. And Oliver and, and uh, Brad Davis, the actor, you know, he's put his heart and soul into it. And the music, Giorgio Moroder made this incredible music that made the whole film work. So I really lucked out coming out of jail. Most guys getting out, it's such a hard grind to just get back 
to normal. I, I had the opposite. I came out, everybody knew me. People were sending me stuff. I'm writing a book. They're making a movie. It's like, this is great. This is way better than prison. <laughs> you got anything, Bruno? No, that'll do it for me for this end. <laughs> All right. Well, look, guys, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold it up again because I'm, I'm trying to sell it. This, this book, I wrote Midnight Express, then I wrote Midnight Return, the follow-up. Then I did the book Midnight Express Letters 10 years after that. And then this book happened during COVID because I've been wanting to, to kind of tie up all the loose ends of my story. I wanted to also honor my, my parents, which I talk about in the book in terms of their passing and what they meant to me. And uh, my marriage to Wendy, which <laughs> the best thing I ever did. And eventually some, some people, husband and wife director team did a documentary about me where they followed me around for 12 years. Docs, you know, you start in one place, but you never know where they're going to end up. You never know how they're going to finish. And we kept going. They wanted me to go back to Turkey. And that was going to be the big catch in the documentary. They were going to sell the doc on Billy Hayes going back to Turkey. So I finally contacted the Turkish government and such, and they wouldn't let me back. I'm an escaped convict drug smuggler with an Interpol warrant. Uh, They won't let me in. I want to get in and they won't let me in because they had so much bad publicity out of Midnight Express. And I wrote this book to try and explain the, I actually did go back to Istanbul and visited the prison I'd been in. They wouldn't let us actually go in the prison, which was fine with me, but I got to go out and stand on the street in Istanbul and look back up across the wall in the barbed wire at a certain set of windows. I knew exactly where to look, where I used to sit in this window before the guards closed off this section and look out across that barbed wire right down to the street I was standing on in, in, in Istanbul. So it was sort of a bizarre transition to look back up at that window across time and space. And then whoo, uh, Sally, the lady who did the doc, wanted to see a lot of stuff in Istanbul. We went out to see the prison. And then they took me to Bakakoy Madhouse, which had been closed for more than 15 years. They literally, they, they closed it up. They took all the madmen out, closed it up, just put a big padlock on the door and left it like that. Nobody had been in there for 15 years. They, they had made a, a new section in the hospital for the criminally insane. And Turkey did a much better job dealing with people who needed this help. I mean, the, the place they first locked us in, it was just put the madman in here and just close the door. This was a place where they were doing treatment. But the old house, the old place was still there. And the cop who was driving us around, the cop who actually brought me back to Istanbul as part of this getting back and connecting with the Turks again. These cops had heard me on YouTube mentioning how I would love to come to Istanbul. And, you know, Turkey knew me from the movie Midnight Express in the courtroom scene where my character is being sentenced to life in prison. And the audience hated the Turks for that scene. They've got my character screaming at the Turks. You know, you're a nation of I fuck you all. I fuck your sons and I fuck your daughters. First off, the logic of that you just been sentenced to life in this country and you get publicly up there and say your sons are daughter that made no sense and they had me kill a guard which again i didn't do that's not how i escaped so i got a chance to talk to the turkish people i had a big press conference and i was telling them this kind of the stuff i'm telling you and i got a chance to go out to the madhouse and actually go in there and the guy came and he he did the key would have been locked up and the door creaked open i wandered into this place and all dusty and dirty, and the tables were covered with spoons and plates on the table, just covered with dust. And they put us, and I actually got to walk down into the basement. You talk about walking the wheel. 
I got to walk around the wheel in the empty basement where I had, had been before, very accurate scene where these madmen were walking the wheel. That was so insane. But now we're there, it's me and the filmmakers with cameras and I'm walking this fucking wheel in this dingy, dusty, quiet place. It was so bizarre. And I went down towards the end of place, past where what was a, like the latrine place that was just horrific back in the day. It wasn't roses now, but it didn't smell that bad. But they had these punishment cells where they used to take the maddest of the madmen and poof, throw them in there and chain them up and sometimes lock them to the bed naked and leave their door open. Ooh, that was that was real bad. But I, I got to go into one of these little punishment cells. And in fact, there's a picture in in Midnight, Midnight Express epilogue. There's a photo of me sitting on one of these little bunks in these punishment cells, kind of curled up. I got my hands like this. It was so freaky. I was, I, I, I was talking to the camera, making some stupid, inane little remarks to the camera. But after about, I don't know, 20, 30 seconds, I said, I'm done. I got to, and I had to run out of the place to get out of there. But all of that, all of that documentary, it, it turned out so well that we got chosen to have the documentary be aired in the 2016 Cannes Film Festival, 38 years after the original movie where I met my wife premiered in the Cannes Film Festival. We got to go back and the, the film aired there. I got to speak to all the French journalists who loved the idea of me and my wife 38 years later, this whole circle of love coming back. And I actually got to have this whole story told at Cannes. It was sort of a culmination of my life and my story and we thought it would be the end of the documentary because we've been keep looking for the end of it and it almost was but about a year later i got an offer from the in new york city every year on the 29th of october the anniversary of the uh, founding of the turkish republic the uh mustafa kemal ataturk's birthday i believe they they raised the turkish flag on wall street every year and that year i think it's 2014 they invited me to raise the Turkish flag on Wall Street, which I never would have imagined that. And that's the end of the documentary. There's a picture of me holding the Turkish flag, pulling it up. It was a completion. It was a connection because I actually, I, I, I love the Turkish people. I didn't like the jail, but it was not like the film made it out to be. So this was a chance for me to kind of balance everything and bring it back around and Great, great story, man. I think I got to let you go. I'm sure you guys are tired, but uh, thank you for having me on, guys. Billy, it's been absolutely amazing. I've looked at the other stuff you've done. You've been so generous with your time this evening. Thank you for spending all this time and getting into so much detail. I don't think you've ever told a story like this on any other YouTube videos I've seen. They've all been less than no, an hour long. Not quite this much. <laughs> no, this, this, was, this was more gripping the movie. I was on the edge of my seat, especially when you were describing the escape. I was blown away by the detail, your emotion. We were right there with you, and I'm sure the viewers are feeling the same. So viewers, please let us know in the comments what you thought about this. Billy's new book is Midnight Express, Epilogue, Train Keeps Rolling. All the links will be in the description box. Thank you, guys. If, if people want to reach out to you, Billy, you're on Facebook and stuff like that. Is that, that your main? I'm on Facebook, Billy Hayes, and you can see my picture. Um, I, 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 have, um, I have a website. I can barely open my emails. I mean, so I'm serious. I'm technically really bad. But my producer, I've been doing a one-man show for seven years, traveling the world, doing Riding the Midnight Express with Billy Hayes, me telling these stories. 
which I didn't want to do, but I realized after a while, people want to hear these things. I kept thinking they're sick to death that heard Billy Hayes midnight, so that's bullshit. But people doing when I did the show, I I do a 73-minute show, then I stop and do a QA for about a half an hour, right? I learn a lot from the audience. And what I discovered is not only do they they're not sick of it, they actually wanted to hear it. And people, I had people come up and tell me afterwards that they they were inspired by hearing me do this, which as an actor, applause is nice. Hear somebody say, you inspired me, you changed my life. I get tears even saying it here. It, it was so good for me to be doing this at this late, late stage of my life. And I was able to bring it all together. And it was kind of a wrap up of everything. And And I don't know where I was going, but I, I thank you for bringing me on and me, having me be able to spread this around a little bit. And if your viewers have any questions, you can go to billyhays.com. That's the website Billy. my producer put up. It's got all this information, all the books, a bunch of photos, and all the other rah-rah bullshit stuff that I've been talking about. It's, Thanks for having me on, Bruno. Pleasure, pleasure to meet you, my friend. Pleasure to meet you. It's it's been it's been a pleasure. You're unbelievable, man. Thank you for letting me hear your story. I appreciate it. One of these days, we'll sit down, have a little coffee, and smoke a, a number or something. And Sean, I'm going to be in London. The guys in, at the theater in England, where I did the show, I don't know, four or five years ago, have been swearing they're going to bring us back. My producers trying to make something happen. We're actually trying to do a six part mini series to tell the whole story. We'll see. We've been at it for years and years, but uh, I don't give up easy. So one of these days that'll happen. And I'll see you in London, Sean. Oh, we'll go to the pub, have some some fish and chips and Guinness. Love to do that. I love it. Absolutely. And for the viewers who want to see the backstory of myself and Bruno, I'll put the links down there. We've interviewed Bruno several times now. And if you've read Hard Time, if you've read the Little Italy chapter, seeing Bruno in real life is just going to blow your mind and to hear his story as well. So huge thank you for joining us tonight, Bruno. And I'll just let let the viewers know we have got some uh, high-profile ex-Mafia characters lined up out of the US that Bruno is going to interview with me. So look forward to them as well. So yeah. Cheers, guys. Thank you. Any any last thoughts, anyone? No, I appreciate it. Thank you, Billy. Thank you, thank you. Namaste. Namaste. Cheers, everyone. Thank you very much. Take care. Take care. Thank you.